You can hear me in your ear, right? Yeah. Okay. Give me a few words there. Uh, my mother-in-law's in town. Okay. It's <laughs> a lot of fun. God bless you. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> She's been here two weeks tomorrow, so it's been a while. That's a long visit. Is she staying with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She goes to bed pretty early, it seems. But uh, that might be just to get away from us. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I don't you know. know. You seem pretty agreeable. Maybe it's to get away from the kids. My mom does that. She'll go visit my sister. Yeah. And she'll be all excited for the grandkids. And then she'll spend an hour or two with them. And then all of a sudden, she disappears. It's like, wait, where'd you go? Mm-hmm. Oh, I went to bed early. I was tired. I'm like, oh, imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because grandparents can be funny that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's nice for them to be, you know, hang out with her. But sometimes it's a bit much, you know, constantly having to like be like, well, what would you like for lunch? Breakfast. Oh, got you know, it. Like well, there's different types of travelers like that, right? Some travelers are very self-sufficient and they're like, hey, I know I'm here, but I don't want to get in your way. I just want to see right. it and I'll make my own plans, whatever. And then there are other folks who really rely on the people they're staying with. Oh, what are we going to do today? Yeah. <laughs> What's for breakfast? Uh, oh, you're like, I got to go to work. Cool. Yeah, I'll be yeah. at work all day. <laughs> Especially for a long <laughs> See visit. See you later, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot different if you go for a long weekend than mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, Ben Parsons, thank you for coming back on. Uh, sorry to have to do this to you. The first time we recorded was a long time ago. Honestly, I don't even remember. I think it was the sip into spring weekend. Oh, so right. sometime yeah. in April. Yeah, so time flies. Ago. And so sorry for the delay, but I messed up our recording. It uh, happens. It does it <laughs> to a I podcaster? Mean, I don't know. <laughs> it <laughs> Actually, it seems fairly straightforward. <laughs> it does seem you put the headsets on, you push record. But, yeah, I had a little technical error. It's not bad. We can still hear our conversation. It sounds like we're on speakerphone. I had someone on Fiverr help me out. Did you ever try Fiverr? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah, it's kind of sketch at first, but you log in and... It's almost like a Craigslist of offerings. You can type in any kind of technical things you have or even to like organize your computer. There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And people, I think originally the idea was doing tasks for $5 or something like that. Now it's more expensive. They do have $5 offerings. Like but a dollar store. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dollar store, you go in and everything's 20 bucks. Right. Uh, but it's neat. You have people from all over the world who for reasonably cheap will do projects for you. So I sent a couple of people the audio file. They were like, this is pretty shitty, man, but we'll do our best. Yeah. So they salvaged it. And I wanted to have you back on just to explain that that had happened, but also to have a little more good vibes going into it and to have hear your voice nice and clear <laughs> and to have you tell me all the times that you've messed things up in your career to make me feel better. <laughs> so if you can think of anything and you want to tell us about it. I mean, so many times, right? Because you learn from all your mistakes. So every day I probably mess up in one way or another. You really do. <laughs> yeah. Every time I read an entrepreneurial book or something, the whole crux of it is that the person failed until they succeeded. Mm-hmm. The difference is between it is you have to learn from your mistakes. Yeah. I learned what the problem was. We fixed it. All good. We'll move forward. <laughs> Yours was at least salvageable. I did an episode with Tim Wenger. And it was a shame because he has a very young kid. I pulled him out of his house. He had to arrange time away from his wife. We went downtown to a co-working space to record. Yeah. And literally the whole thing, you couldn't hear anything from it. <laughs> so, I mean, we hung out. It was nice. We're yeah, friends. Yeah. But I had to call him after and be like, sorry, man. He's like, oh, come on, man. You know how hard it was for me to get out? 
<laughs> Sorry, man. Well, good news is you'll get another night out. Right. My yeah. bad. But in between the time we met, you went to England. Yeah, I was back in the UK for like almost three weeks and yeah, kind of flew into London and spent like five days there, which is which was great. People will learn when they listen to the interview after this that that's your homeland. So you went yep. back to visit family and stuff, right? Yeah, family and my kids are kind of that age where um, we knew they would appreciate seeing, you know, London for the first time. And yeah, it was great. We uh, Incredibly, we didn't have like a drop of rain in three weeks, which was amazing. And it's like um, going to Seattle and getting sun. It was like, it was beautiful. <laughs> like, and yeah, kind of just cruised around London and caught up with some friends in London and you know, showed them all the sights and stuff, and uh, we stayed opposite um, Houses of Parliament, um, Westminster, and just right, kind of stared at the London Eye from our from our room in our hotel. Did you go on it? We did, did a London Eye. What'd yeah. you think? Uh, I've done it before. I mean, it was, it was fine. It's a nice know? view of the city. Yeah. Good for the kids. It was good. Just expensive for what it is, which is a big How much real. I think it was like... 50 pounds a person holy shit yeah like wow. 200 pounds like that's event. a half hour experience right? yeah 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 <laughs> i mean you did get a good view and and it was fun i suppose but more fun was taking like a river cruise like down from westminster to tower bridge and the guy who uh kind of led the cruise i suppose it was more like a taxi service was very colorful and uh Real character gave us like the the Londoners tour of uh, cruising down the Thames. Cool. Tell Is that river the, beautiful? Or I only see the part um, that runs through London. Does it get more wild? It's not really that beautiful. I mean, it, there's parts of it that are beautiful, but it's very tidal, right? So it turns around, you know, like it's 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 incoming or outgoing, which I suppose creates some unique challenges. But it was fun just to hear this Cockney guy like give a, us his tour of London and. Uh, the, all the pubs that he did research in for the tours. Oh, you know, yes, of like, course. Uh, you got to do your research. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what did your kids think of the city? They, they had never been, I'm guessing. Right? Yeah, I think they enjoyed it, you know, other than the museums, which we quickly uh, exited. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think they, they enjoyed it, just kind of being being out. Did they connect with the history or understand the significance? I mean, probably seeing just like how old everything is in comparison, you know. That's the cool thing about Europe in general, right? You were just showing me some pictures and we were looking at that stone wall with all right. those beautiful water, wildflowers coming out. It's like, how old is that wall? Probably older than our country. Probably at least 800 years old, I would think. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, what kind of struck me was how well-preserved buildings were, like from looking at them from the outside. And then like you imagine they would be like higgledy-piggledy inside, but they're like super updated and you're like... Well, this is inside <laughs> that building. Like, you know, it just doesn't kind of register. They how modernized well all the inside. They are exactly. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, no, it was great. Just, uh, yeah, ate some good food, drank some good wine, saw some old friends who actually work. One of them works at the Guardian newspaper, and um, yeah, just kind of hung out, and then went down to um, to Southwest England to Cornwall for like ten days, and right on the coast and i was shocked at how clear the water looked you know it reminded me kind of of well the cliff sides reminded me of northern ireland or something like that yeah, along the yeah. cliffs and then 
I've seen some of that coastline up in Scotland where you get that really crystal clear blue water. Yeah. But I just never thought of that for England because growing up in the east coast of the Atlantic here right. in America, it's all just muddy and dirty. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But it looked amazing. Yeah, kind of like, almost like Northern Cal, you know? Like, I would say, like, just kind of really, like, rocky outcrops, grass growing all the way to the edge with, like, beautiful wildflowers and paths and... um and then just kind of rough, uh, the ocean at least was, was rough because it's where the English Channel meets the Atlantic. Yeah, and we stayed kind of overlooking this, this ancient open-air theatre called the Minac Theatre. Minac? Minac, M-I-N-A-C, which is like on this peninsula and it's like, it, it, it's like a natural theatre where people go and see performances wow. like a couple it, of times a day. It was used back in the day? Oh yeah, like hundreds of years ago. That was yeah, the community yeah. space together. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, and um, yeah, just with a beautiful view of the English Channel and the Atlantic, just looking out. Wow! Know. Did you see a show? No, we didn't. We should have done, but we we had younger kids in the party, so we decided not to torture ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> traveling with kids is a whole different ball game. Yeah, it is. I mean, I was pretty good. They're they, you know they're nine and seven, so and they've they used to traveling long distances i would say but um yeah it was it was it was fun like i would definitely go back there i mean there was a we visited a vineyard in in cornwall just up the road out, outside of penzance that was which was growing some some interesting varietals and making some great sparkling wines and kind of hung out there for a bit and um some of their vines were like covered in kind of like big tents i would say uh, but they still had like 20 acres. I mean, it was fairly big operation. Why did they cover them in tents? I mean, I guess to try to mitigate like either, maybe they have like, I mean, they do have big, like incredibly strong winds down there, but also, I mean, it does get beaten up with rain and stuff as well. How does um, the sun get through? Are they Well, they're wires. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it almost creates a greenhouse. Yeah. I mean, um, may, yeah, maybe that was a, you know, a variety that struggles, and so they wanted to get more heat in there. I'm not sure. It wasn't like a full-sided tent, though. No. You know, just partial-sided. Okay. It was more like for overhead protection. But, um, yeah, I mean, really good sparkling wines. I mean, England has awesome sparkling wines. I mean, it's on the same chalk escarpment as Champagne in France. So Oh, spoken like a true yeah, Englishman. Global warming. Uh, what would a Frenchman say about that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're all buying land in England, so they are. They are the whole Tattinger family has bought tons of land up in um, in uh, in the Kent and Sussex, where a lot of the grapes are planted. And then Jackson Estates just bought uh, like a or partnered with Gosborne Estates. I was reading today, like doing some big project, like a big American winery, Kendall Jackson. Interesting. So, I got to be yeah. honest; I don't think I've ever had an English wine. They're good. You should check them out. Night what's, Timber, Chapel Down. What's the vibe? Is it I mean, they're they're amazing sparkling ones. Like very good, up there with the best, I would say. Okay. Yeah, and probably tougher to find them over here, but but real good. And then vinifera, of course. Or do they have um, any specialty grape? They have like some weird stuff too, like this one called Bacchus, which is like a German varietal. I don't know if it's vinifera or not. It doesn't sound like it, but um kind of tastes like Sauvignon Blanc is actually delicious. But then they do like traditional like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Monnier for, for sparkling wines, which grows really well. They don't really do any good red wines because it's, it's really too 
cold, you know. But um, yeah, their whites and their sparklings is, are awesome. Can you buy them here in the states? At you probably Grand can Junction buy them. Something? Probably not in Junction. Okay, but you can probably find them like on the coast. I mean, I'm sure New York, you could find them. You know. California. What do the kids do while you're at the winery? Well. Oh, just at the winery in England. Yeah. Just, well, there were horses there, so they were just kind of hanging out. Of course, out and, some know. English countryside, so yeah, beautiful totally place. Just like walking around, seeing, uh, playing in the grass, running around the vines, that yeah. kind of thing. Funny thing about kids, I just led a tour in Hawaii last week, and it was very unique. It was grandparents with their grandkids. It was interesting yeah. for a variety of reasons, but I tell you this because at the end, we do a survey of the kids, and we ask, what did you like? What did you not like? The thing they said they liked the most was swimming at the pool, which is hilarious for going to Hawaii, right? Because right. that's the thing they remember is like, oh, yeah, that hotel had a great pool. It's <laughs> like, okay. Could have uh, been anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the thing they said they thought was the least interesting and the most boring was touring the active volcano. And so it's just <laughs> hilarious, right? I'm thinking of you bringing your kids through London. And it's like, oh, Big Ben and Parliament. And here's the Royal Palace. And what did they take from that? And what did they think was the most interesting, right? But I just thought of those kids. And it's like, <laughs> man, you're literally on one of the most interesting sites in the world where new right. land is constantly being produced. And it just makes no connection for them. Plus, you're in Hawaii snorkeling, right. surfing, and the thing you remember is, oh, man, that pool. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. But yeah. that's part of being a kid, Yeah, right? mental note. You exactly. Know, don't spend money on a vacation. I want to hear more about your uh, – I know you just won a prestigious award for your wine, and you also have another nomination for, I think, your tap room. So we want to get into that. But before yeah. that, we, we move on from London, this prompted me today thinking about talking to you. In 2016 – I went to the Lake District mm -hmm. in England, and I did a little trekking through there. Shit weather the whole time, of course, raining yeah. and whatever. I can't remember if we talked about this the last time we talked, but Alfred Wainwright said there's no such thing as unsuitable weather, only unsuitable clothing. <laughs> and he wrote that in the Lake District. Yeah. So I wrote a couple stories of there, and one of which was entitled How to Know if You're in a Legit English Pub. Hmm. And you mentioned you visited some pubs while you were there. I did. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts, and I'll tell you about my story. First off, is going to pubs, like, it must be such a, like, I don't think there's any comparison from an American bar to an English pub. They just have such more character and such more right. of a, a feel. What's your take on it, having grown up over there? And Yeah, I think they're very, like, comfortable places to be that aren't trying at all hard to be that. And they don't have a shtick, right? Yeah, and they're just—they're very relaxing. They've, you know, it's the—it's the heart and soul of the the village, the town. It's where everyone goes um, after they've finished work to to hang out. Like in England, like in the older pubs, the ceilings will be incredibly low. There'd be a fireplace. They'd be pulling cast-conditioned ales on a pump. They would—they would look at funny. You look at you funny if you ask for chips and and not crisps you know they right they they wouldn't get fancy with any kind of cocktails or anything chips um, being fries crisp being potato chips right correct okay yeah. yeah um they usually in the country they'd have a beautiful garden you know with just some picnic benches and i think the beauty of going to england in the summer you know especially when we were there is is like it doesn't get dark until 11:30 at night and then it's light again at 4:30 so you're sitting in a pub it's 11:30 at night and it's still light beautiful it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Easy to see the sunrise. Too. Yeah. You don't yeah, have to great. go too hard if you yeah. don't want. 
Well, my trip was horrible, I got to be honest, because I came from Nepal. And I don't know if you've been to Kathmandu, but they have these really good street food there called momos. Mm. And the saying there is an American wants a cheeseburger, Nepalese wants a momo. Uh-huh. And there's these little street dumplings, and they're so good. I yeah. loved them. I had a early morning flight, so the last night I was like, I'm just going to crush some street momos. You know, they're very cheap. So I probably ate like 20 of them or whatever. Went to bed, flew to London, England the next day, eventually made my way up to Lake Windermere and just checked in at night. And that night became so violently ill, just had horrible food poisoning from eating the momos. Yeah. I was supposed to trek the next few days. Ended up being, I got sick in the middle of dinner, staying at this little countryside inn where the proprietor is serving you dinner. And I had to get up and walk out mid mid dinner. It was kind of embarrassing. Yeah. But was so it was one of those sicknesses. I remember I was lying in bed and it was when the Belgian airport bombing was. Mm. And I remember watching that, and it was one of those sicknesses where just to get up and walk to the bathroom takes every inch of energy you have, and you just realize how freaking weak you are compared to disease and Mother Nature. But anyway, I I recouped, and then I went sort of on this little trekking trip, and by that point, I got way less ambitious, so I knew I wasn't going to do a ton, but I was like, okay, I'm going to go on some day hikes, and I'm going to hike pub to pub. Hmm. So start in the morning, hike to a pub, have a beer. And then maybe by evening, reach another one and yeah. then get shuttled back. So I ended up writing the story. So here was my conclusions. Um, there were a couple things that ways to know if you're in a legit English pub. Let's see if you agree. According to 2016, Will McGough. The first one is physical appearance. Yeah, I interviewed some people for this, et cetera. They said, you know, while modern city pubs, they're kind of striving to be more comfortable and plush leather seating and all this stuff. A traditional pub should have bare bones, hardwood or stone floors, and most importantly, a roaring wood-burning fire. Mm -hmm. He said the bare floor is meant to accommodate wet jackets and muddy dogs coming in off the mountain, and the fire combats England's notoriously damp weather, stirs conversation, and when necessary, dries clothes. So stone floors and fireplace, I think, are key, okay? Next section in terms of the customer and the staff, the customers are the heart and soul of the pub, without question. No, you're in a legit pub when the clientele are having conversations with each other. And this is his quote. He said, the idea is to have a couple beers, drink more beers than you should, talk rubbish, and forget about it in the morning. <laughs> so you have to have a conversational atmosphere so not everyone on their freaking phones like yeah, here yeah. in America. And then the food. The last part was the food. He said a lot of new pubs do the whole gastro pub kind of vibe where they want to serve all this fancy food. Yeah. Now that's kind of being challenged for the legit pubs. They said a truly traditional pub will have simple, focused food menu, such as pork pies, scotch eggs, black pudding. And this guy said that was the only three things he had on his menu. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Like in Down by the Coast, I mean, obviously you get fish and chips that are just freshly caught that day and delicious and Cornish pasties, which is basically just mince and onions and vegetables put into like a pastry and you just kind of pick it up and eat it it's hot obviously yeah simple but nourishing not trying to do too much yeah 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 do you find that those pubs are more conversational or do they have the same iphone diseases here in america um well i mean i think when i first go started going to pubs there weren't even cell phones so (laughs) you know like there was no opportunity or distraction like that you Mm. know and i think when people are on vacation they're less likely to be picking up their cell phone anyway 
So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you could tell who the locals were in the pub, that's for sure. Yeah. Just kind of hanging out in the corner, just, you know. Talking rubbish. Yeah. That's Love right. it. Anyway, that was just a cool memory lane. Thought you might enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. So, tell me about your, your tap room, right? You just got nominated for a USA yeah, Today uh, award. Yeah, USA Today, like, best new winery experience. In the country or Colorado? In the country. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, that was great. You stoked? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we look at our phone every day and see what, what number we're at. How you doing? <laughs> we're four out of 20. Okay. So that's Oh, they nominated bad. 20 wineries. Yeah. Do you know how you were nominated? No idea. Really? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I really don't. Huh. It's kind of random. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's just like a popularity contest. You just have to try to get everyone you know to vote for you as many times as, as they can. Yeah, it's basically about driving traffic to their website, totally. right? Yeah. And you yeah. got to like whore so yourself out to get the... Kind of take uh, it with a pinch of salt, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you know? winning, you definitely have to take with a grain of salt because yeah. some people are going to game the system or whatever. But just to be nominated is a huge honor. So that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, that was good. I mean, um, you're that's more attention on Palisade. and For sure. Yeah. And you know, there were a few other wineries nominated in different categories, which was just cool, like Best Winery Tour and... Stuff like that. So, yeah. You you guys were? No, I've like Colteris and um, Carboy. Oh, yeah. Which one's like the best they winery get? tour? I think best winery tour. Yeah. And Carboy, maybe it must. Yeah. In the Denver location? No, I think it was the Palace. Well, you might be right. Maybe it is the Denver location. I'm not sure. Yeah. I've been to Carboy. I've never seen a tour happening. No, me neither. That's um. Do they make the wine there, or do they make it in Denver still? Well, I think they. Their, their goal is to like make the base wine because this is meant to be their sparkling wine house. You oh, know? that's right. Um, so they're really kind of, you know, doubling down on sparkling wine production over here. I think they're trying to get up to like 6,000 cases, which is huge for wow. sparkling wine, at least in Colorado. And so I think they're, they kind of finish the wine in Palisade. Cool. I think sparkling wine is a good vibe for Palisade. Yeah. As you sure. know, it gets very hot here. It does. I feel like, I yeah, think just the in the past two weeks, it's the temperature has been turned up. For sure. I mean, <laughs> whites, rosé, sparkling, that's where it's at anyway. Yeah. yeah. And which you just won a big award, right? Or had We a just good, got some really good, good review. press for sure. I mean, Tell um, us about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get there's a, there's a magazine that's been around for forever uh, called Decanter. It's like English-based, probably been around since the early 70s. And now there's a U.S. edition too. But yeah, they just they just gave our wine some some excellent scores. Which wine? Pinot Noir. They gave like um, a ninety-two uh, out of a hundred. Wow! Which is congratulations best score for Colorado wine in that magazine. And then best score gave, ever for a Colorado oh, wine. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Really? Yep. And ben, then yeah, that's and, awesome. Yeah, it was great. And then they gave our Chardonnay ninety-one and our Riesling a ninety. So yeah, we're just you we had just, three wines. We only sell nineties. Wines <laughs> that get 90 points, so it's uh, The Ordinary Fella. That's, That's amazing. Right. Are they yeah. all available now? Yeah, they are, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then actually Parker, like Robert Parker's magazine, which most people in the wine business would know, gave our shot in the 90. So, yeah, we're just like rolling in points right now. It's Does this sweet. make you stoked? Uh, it's nice to get recognition, like regardless of what you, you think about it. Certainly, it's good to get recognition from magazines that only talk about wine right because there's magazines that talk about literally everything and they'll have like a token wine reviewer and they'll just 
hand out like gold medals left, right, and center to everyone. You know, they need content. Like, everyone gets like a rosette. Well done. You yeah. Did, you know, like, and they just throw out these crazy scores. You know, but to actually get recognized by, by you know, one of the probably the three most influential wine magazines in the world is is good. Have you gotten any props for it? Has people contacted you since, or what, how does um, that move the well, needle for you? I mean, I've been out selling a lot. People have definitely have tasted the wines and have been really stoked about them. And, and then I tell them, and they're like, "Yeah, that's good." That's yeah, yeah it's, it's a selling point, right? When you it is, when you don't like to lead with it, but like if they like it, you're like, "Yeah." By just kind way. of throw it in casually, you know. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the top magazine agrees. So you're, with so you. you're right. <laughs> you're, congratulations for liking it. These guys also liked it. Yeah. Or if they hate it, you're like, wow, that's interesting. Because let me tell, tell you me. something. Tell me that's weird. That's weird that you didn't like it. That's interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> because there's this magazine called. No. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? Uh, you can't. You were just in Aspen. You said delivering some wine, right? Yeah, I was just out there. Um, People were having a, a good old time, huh? Well, I mean, I forgot that it was like Fourth of July weekend. Yeah. So yeah, it was packed. Really? So busy. Good for Aspen. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, but sold some wine to Grape and Grain. It's a really good store up there. But you, were you cold calling or they or I know all those it? guys. Okay. Same people have been up there for 20 years. So yeah. just kind of going and saying hello, you know. I think that's awesome that you still deliver on your own. Yeah, it's been a lot of driving this week. Denver, Glenwood once and then back up there again to deliver and then up to Aspen and do down you, to the vineyard. Is there a method to that madness or do you just like the alone time? I mean, clearly you could probably at this point – with your success, hire someone to do it. Do you just think that FaceTime is important? Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, there's it's no one better at selling it than the than the winemaker. Because they have know. a lot of qu- is it really a tasting you do? Yeah, you sit, them? you go in, you you taste them. Um, they ask questions, you know, and you you say as much as or as little as you want to say, you know. Yeah. Depending on how confident you are, <laughs> right? I think you know, yeah, bad salesmen just oversell it. Yeah. But yeah, we. Uh, Denver is like, it's just like wide open. It's like, I just, I'm just cold calling these accounts and going in and I haven't seen them in years and be like, Hey, you remember me? Want to taste some wine? They're Got like, something yeah, sure. for you. you know? What do you mean by it's wide open? Just opportunity for so wine? much. Yeah. Really? So much opportunity. Like not just like off premise, but on premise, like good restaurants and just looking for, for something good. So, yeah. Yeah. But is that geographically... GUD, as we used to say, geographically undesirable. Like, do you imagine yourself driving over the mountains every week to deliver wine? Or I mean, I th- am right now. You are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least once a week. Yeah. To Denver? Yeah. Wow. And I'll go and I'll be back the same day. You, you just know, crush and down hit, and like crush 20 back. accounts and just really? deliver to, yeah, like two weeks ago, the day after I got back from England, like I delivered to 28 accounts in a day. And that was like also going to Colorado Springs, up to Lafayette, Denver, and then back to Junction. Holy crap. Yeah. What kind of car are you driving, mate? Just a Tacoma. <laughs> I don't have my uh, uh, my Evo 8 anymore. I had a Fast and Furious Lancer Evo 8 when I was uh, 15 years ago in Colorado. Yeah, I fun. believe we talk about your story <laughs> when your first pickup truck that you guys got when you started Inf- Infinite Monkey Theorem mm-hmm. and all that. So folks listening, they can continue on and hear that story of your beginnings. I just think it's amazing you still do it. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily want to, but it's the um, really the only way to, to sell product is to get out there and do it yourself. And like if going through a distributor at, at our stage or any 
Colorado wineries right now who's making less than 5,000 cases just doesn't make any sense because you're just they're going to take too it, much yeah, of it. Yeah, mar- they just kind of kill you on the margin. Yeah. They crush your margin, right? Because yeah. you don't even get your wholesale rate anymore, and then they, they take a cut exactly. of that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the only way is to load up the truck. Yeah, I mean, which is which is fine, you know? I mean, you get to you get to sell more wine, you get to talk to people and remind them that you're around and relevant. And um, What happens when you outgrow the back of your pickup truck? Well, I've got, I've got an F-250 as well. Okay. So, yeah, I can get 60 cases in there. <laughs> 60 cases in there? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so does most accounts, when you sell to a restaurant, are they getting a case usually? Oh, we just placed our, like, Rosé Pinot Noir at the Denver Country Club. Oh. Uh, they took five cases straight away, and today you just ordered another five. So they've gone through five in a week. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must make you feel that's, good. And that's a legit account, you know? Like, yeah. So, yeah, so it's just introducing a lot of people to the wine, you know, which is important. Is the wine industry like where you could get to a point where you're like, hey, look, I'm coming from Palisade, mate. I don't want to drive over here every day. Can you just take 25 cases right now? Or Not really. But, that... I mean, you can ask them to take a couple of weeks worth, maybe two cases or whatever. If it's on a restaurant wine list, buy the glass. And, and generally speaking, they're pretty affable to that. But I get it. They're in business too, like. It's all about cash flow for them too. Yeah, fair enough. You know, we run into that with kombucha because it needs to be refrigerated. Mm. So a lot of people don't have the fridge space to store extra cases. Right. Then if they go through it fast, we end up having to deliver and deliver and deliver. Do you charge a delivery fee? No. No. Yeah, no. us either. But we've thought about it for, like, if you do, like, maybe having a minimum order for, like, over a certain amount, we won't charge a delivery fee. But if you're getting a case then look you know if you want to you can come pick it up or we'll yeah charge a delivery fee yeah i mean i usually i would i would just try to stack deliveries you know like if someone calls me then i'll just start making like a bunch of phone calls and be like hey you need any wine i'm coming over yeah that's a good idea and get like 20 cases at a time or something you know what about in the fall when you're actually busy uh, harvesting and making because that's your advantage now is that you're kind of right a little bit freer because yeah, yeah you're not making anything yeah i mean you just got to do it you know i mean i'm not making a lot of wine so honestly the wine making side of it doesn't take up that much time that's that's the easy side of it selling it's the hardest side always has been you cool. can make good wine but if you can't sell it what's the point <laughs> definitely yeah well and it's like we talked about and we don't have to go back into it but there's just so much competition in wine so you're going up against not just colorado but the whole world yeah which is why it's important for the owners to get out because they're the ones with the story and the personality and ultimately selling anything is just about friendships and whether someone likes you or not. Yeah. Doesn't, couldn't give a crap about what's in the bottle. That's they just, fair enough. They just like you, you know. Yeah. That's why they buy it. Thank God for the go local movement, right? Yeah, yeah. Imagine before that all started, if you walked into Denver, it's like, hey, look, it's local Colorado wine. They're like, who cares? Well, when I started in selling colorado wine in like 2004 or 5 that's kind of what it was like Like, and having to deal with that and like deal with a lot of kind of negative associations with bad colorado wine experiences but um you still get that to be honest but um it's it's less frequent than it was and and now like when they taste it they're like oh that's good well that's a great segue uh because in the actual episode we hear all about your backstory and how you started infinite monkey theorem and putting wine in cans for the first time 
and a lot of good stuff. So thank you for coming by again and humoring me. <laughs> uh, this is the last time I'll have you by, I swear. <laughs> no, you're welcome I'll anytime. Come yeah. yeah, come back and have a drink sometime. We don't nice. have to record. Then we can get the good stories out of you. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Ben, for coming by. And for those listening, uh, stick around for the episode. Maybe we'll just start it up naturally. We'll just play the intro music again and, and rock right into it. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, mate. Ben Parsons, thanks for coming on, man. Good to see you. Good to see you, bro. How you doing? It's been a while. You've been busy. Yeah. Past two weekends, sipping to spring. No, we, spring. we weren't a part of sipping to spring. But, you did um, do it. But yeah, it was still like a good weekend. Lots of people in town. But last weekend was crazy, just with the old um, barrel tasting. Barrel into spring. Barrel into spring. Almost the same. And if I remember correctly, that's your favorite part of being a winemaker, right? Holding these kind of events and doing tasting for people. <laughs> I mean, it's a really great way to get in front of people, tell them your story, get them to become like lifelong customers. You know, I don't understand people that don't um, spend time engaging them. It doesn't make any sense. You know, they're there. <laughs> you may as well. I agree totally, uh, especially going to a winery and you can have such a generic experience these days. Some people are just mailing it in, pouring the wine from their menu. Their wine pourers are not really engaged. And for me, that makes a huge difference. If I walk in somewhere and get the backstory or meet the winemaker or just have some sort of connection to what I'm drinking, much more likely to come back or, as you say, be a lifelong fan. Yeah, you're going to like part with some cash. I mean, if they don't even tell you what they're pouring you, how can you expect them to ever buy it? Right. Well, you know, some people will just say like, here's our cab or here's our this or here's our that. And you're okay. You taste it. And I think I'm biased because I'm a writer, but knowing the story behind something makes it that much more special. Yeah. Cause you can like, you can relate to it very often, you know, and human struggle and stuff. And people, people, they, they become enamored by it. And it's endearing. You know, they're like, well, the wine might be okay, but the story was great. Yeah. Well, I feel that, uh, <laughs> I feel that way pretty much about this interview too, because we've kind of known each other for a long time. Right. We first met about a decade ago now in Denver. Yeah. At the time, I was a reporter for Condé Nast and you were working at Infinite Monkey Theorem. Yeah. At your Denver location. I believe you had just opened or maybe a few years ago, but you had just launched the canning line. And I want to get into all that. I feel like that's such an interesting history and interesting part of you. I want to talk about what you're doing now, Ordinary Fellow in Palisade. But I also want to fact check myself here a little bit. Let me see if I got my history right. So you grew up in England, right? Yeah, that's right. In Kent. Yep. And that's where you got your start in winemaking? No, I... I finished my undergraduate degree in animal science because I really wanted to be a vet. Animal science. Yeah. So what were you like growing up? You weren't into farming or anything like this? No, you wanted I to be mean, a veterinarian. lived in like a fairly provincial town, um, you know, and had a, a fairly ordinary uh, upbringing. But, um, you know, I, I'd always really wanted to be a vet, like for some reason. Um, and so all of my studies had been, uh, you kind of aimed in that direction. Do you remember why you wanted to be a vet? I think just like a lot of young kids, male or female, they have a innate love of animals. And it's just, it sounds like something you'd want to do. Totally. And less intense than being a doctor. 
Who has to know? <laughs> Back in the day. So, yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, undergrad in animal science and then, you know, whilst I was, I mean, even before I went to university, I was interested in wine in general. But um, after I graduated, I, uh, I, I kind of had this idea I wanted to pursue a career in wine. I was kind of really into, like, genetics at that time. And, um, and a lot of it was pertaining to like different rootstocks and stuff in, in wine and viticulture. But anyway, I took a job working at a wine merchant in central London, uh, called Leighton's, which is very fancy, selling very expensive bottles of wine. Okay. To very silly people. Very silly people? <laughs> well, anyone that can, uh, can afford to spend a thousand pounds on a bottle of wine. It's pretty silly. If you a thousand me. pounds yeah. for a bottle of wine. Yeah. So a case is like 12 grand, $15,000. But now what makes it that expensive? I will never understand Just name, that. Yeah. In name recognition. That's Building up the branding. Yeah. And were people buying this because they really thought they were getting the taste value of a thousand pounds or was it more? I think a lot, a bit of everything. Like, um, some of them were buying buying it to lay down and to sell it and, and it would inevitably gain in value. I mean, some of it were doing it to impress and some of, some people just had a lot of money and were just throwing parties and, you know, walking out the door. And so what were you doing for these guys? So I um, was kind of organizing their seller, just like receiving deliveries because it was like a Bordeaux Burgundy specialist. So it was, um, it was very expensive wines in the center of London. And, um, I used to deliver wine on a push bike, like an old push bike, and I could fit four cases of wine on it. Really? I was driving around or cycling around. Uh, how was that around. bike set up? What, how, what do you mean by a push bike? Like, like a, you know, just like a, a regular bicycle. Front, two stacked too high, four on the, four on the front of the bike. Wow. Yeah. That's like Southeast Asia style. Yeah. So, the way they pack their bikes yeah, yeah. over there. I didn't believe it could be done, but then this guy showed me and I was like, I guess it can be. Could you see over the two cases yeah, of wine sure. in front yeah. of you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it was great though. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a good introduction to wine. I mean, tasted a lot of great wines and, um, you know, it was, it was in like central London or kind of around, uh, Belgravia and Sloan Square. So it was all the ambassadors houses, like ordering wine and yeah, met some interesting people, tried some very fancy wine. Well, you would have 48 bottles on the bike. Yes. That's. Did you ever crash and spill them? No, no, never. It was good. I mean, it was fun. Like, <laughs> how old were you then? Uh, I would have been twenty-two, I guess. Okay. Yeah, people would come in, and and some of them were like Naomi Campbell, Elena Christensen, these supermodels who lived nearby, tasting wine, and then were like, "Yeah, let's uh, let's get a few cases of that." And of course, they wouldn't take the bottle that we'd been sampling. So all the guys in the store just got to like hang out and drink it. <laughs> Like this cost a thousand pounds. Did you taste anything during that time that inspired you to, or were you more like, I can't believe the wine industry is this way? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, I think, uh, I tried some great wines, but also it was more kind of like the history of it, you know, like, uh, it's just so intriguing from a, not just from like a geographical geology, organic chemistry perspective from a kind of history wines and there's a whole book on like wine and war, which is just fascinating, you know, and how Hitler was going to use wine to, to kind of fund his, his empire 
Really? And how he stole all the wine from the French in underground caves and how they spent like time like building fake walls and cellars to try and protect it all. It's great. It's called, it's called Wine and War. Wine and War. Yeah. I've never cool. heard that perspective on the war and that, that he was using that as to stockpile. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great book. Really fascinating. I think that's what in, intrigued me with wine. It's like the whole the whole package. It's not just making it and growing it. It's like it's a currency. Yeah, I mean it's it's currency, but it's and it brings people pleasure. I mean, it's not you know, I always tell people it's like there's nothing better than seeing seeing someone drinking the wine you made at a restaurant. You know, you're there having dinner with your wife or whatever and and across the table there's your wine on the table and they're having fun and you know, it's unbelievable. Having conversation. It's really, it's a really good feeling. You know? And what if the couple looks kind of like they're not having fun? And then <laughs> you're like, oh, it's the wine, maybe. You know, one of them will have a bottle, I guess. Yeah. So that, <laughs> yeah, drink two and then you'll feel fine. So that first experience, that's just a wonderful memory and just so funny as a starting point that gets you interested. Do you then sort of amp up your career there? Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I, uh, I, I was working for, in two other places. I was working for a public relations company, which was kind of interesting doing like, uh, it was ph- pharmaceutical public relations. And then in the evenings, I was also working for another wine merchant called Fuller's, which was owned by like Fuller's beer, like which you might, you know, Fuller's, you know, like London Pride, the beer and stuff. I don't think I've had it. It's really good. It's like excellent beer, beer. It's a brewery in Chiswick. West England and they also had three fine wine stores. So I started working there as well. And, um, that was more of like a traditional liquor store, I suppose you would call it here. But the, uh, owners or the manager's wife was Teresa Nobolo, uh, from New Zealand and there's Nobolo wines. And uh, I was, I was heading off traveling again for another year. And, um, she was like, well, I'll give you my dad's, uh, Contact info, and I was like, "Yeah, we could have do like a harvest in New Zealand." So, okay. so kind of ended up doing a, doing a bit of traveling, and then going back to New Zealand and did a harvest in uh, Marlborough. Okay, so you traveled for a year first, just for to find yourself. Actually, I, I did, before I did my undergrad when I was eighteen, I took a year off and I went through Southeast Asia and uh, down through Australia, New Zealand, and uh, the South Pacific. Like Fiji and Tonga and stuff. Was that pretty common for oh, Europeans yeah, to do? Common. Yeah. At that age? Yeah. I wish more Americans did that. We go right from high school into college. Right. And we figure ourselves out in quotes at frat parties instead of yeah. traveling around and learning things. Well, we'd all been drinking since we were 16 anyway, you know? That's true. You guys get those days <laughs> actually in high school, which might be better for Americans because in high school, you're already an idiot. So you might as well get the drinking out of the way too. <laughs> And then focus on more important things when you get to be 18 and start traveling and stuff. Yeah, it was great because, like, you just got like a part time job. You were still at high school, just like stocking shelves or unlo- unloading trucks or whatever, and um, saved up money. And then just there's this company, I think it exists called Trail Finders. Trail and, Finders. Yeah, you can put like multi destination uh, plane tickets together. You know, just like, well, I want to be in Fiji for two weeks. I'll be in New Zealand for three months. I'll be in Thailand for whatever, you know, and they really help you out. So it was, it was like, it was all the rage back then and, and still is. I mean, I think a lot of people do it. 
it's just nice to kind of go into college, you know, having done a lot of that and lots of stories to tell and kind of, yeah, maybe got some of that drinking out of the way, you know? Yeah. Well, you just got such a good perspective on the world at an early age. Mm-hmm. I don't think outside of just family vacations, which for Americans are always usually very contained right. a week long with your parents or this or that. For you, you know, you get that perspective on the world pretty quickly when you're young. So I wish more Americans did that. But so that obviously, once you started traveling that age, you're like, forget London, I'm getting out of here. Yeah, yeah. And you I, mean, went. I, I, I didn't grow up in London. I grew up southeast of London in a you know, really, really pretty um, town. Um, Kent's, right? Yeah, that's the county, but the okay. town was called Tunbridge Wells. Um, and it was, uh, you know, like one of those commuter towns for people who, um, whose parents worked in the city of London. They would get the train every day up to London from Tunbridge Wells. And, you know, really good schools and stuff. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was a good place to grow up, sure. But yeah, we, we had this itch to kind of travel early on and then undergrad and then the jobs I did at the wine merchant and the um, public relations company were really just to raise money to go traveling for another year afterward. Take us through, I mean, moving from England to Australia or New Zealand. Yeah. It seems so, like you spent time both. That must have been a huge move. Were your parents supportive of that? Were you? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it didn't seem that huge. It's halfway um, around the world, man. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like that was quite an ordinary, quite a normal thing to do, to be honest. Really? Like, yeah. So we, yeah, I was in New Zealand and I did the harvest, uh, um, in Marlborough just to kind of see if I like the kind of down and dirty work, of, you know, like hauling hoses and cleaning tanks and stuff. Yeah. It's one thing to bike around to, uh, celebrities and taste them wine. It's yeah. another to get your hands dirty in the field, right? Yeah. And I was, uh, I remember it like, Really well. I was, I was standing on the top of this tanker in the Marlborough Sound, filling it with Sauvignon Blanc juice, which would then get shipped up to Auckland to their, their larger manufacturing facility, just watching the sunset. I was like, this is pretty nice. You know, <laughs> it doesn't get much better. You know? And, uh, and then, um, at the same time, I was applying for a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation, uh, which was like an ambassadorial scholarship, um, where they would pay your entire tuition. Uh, in return for kind of cruising around Rotary clubs and giving lectures and talks. And every district, um, in like the Rotary club world would offer this scholarship. You kind of compete internally amongst other, other clubs. And I won it. I paid for my entire tuition to go to Australia, do a graduate degree in archaeology. So I moved to Australia from New Zealand, London, back to Australia and just, yeah, just just moved to Adelaide and it was, it was great. That was a great experience. What did you give your talks about? Just to, you were meant to just kind of educate people about your hometown, where you're from, what you were doing. Oh, just about where you're from. Yeah, exactly. Thing. So just, it's not exactly. like you needed to be a wine expert at that time oh, no, or anything. Not just, nah. It was just, uh, chill them with the uh, tales from afar or something. Yeah. And a lot of people would have done, you know, would have gone to study in like Nairobi, or, you know, somewhere a little bit more exotic, but. You know, my, my goal was to, to use it to, to actually do something. So, yeah. Well, how exotic was it for you? Because you moved halfway around the world, but your accent fits right in in Australia. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I'd spent, you know, two years in Australia before that, like really, like with all my travel and, and, um, half my family had emigrated to Australia back in the sixties on the 10 pound ferries. It was, 
when Australia was trying to populate, um, they would charge the government would would basically like subsidize your trip from England to Australia. So my dad's brother and his families, it was, they were called the 10 pound ferries. You paid 10 pounds and you moved all your stuff from England to Australia and they moved to Western Australia in the sixties. Really? Yeah. Yeah. In the sixties. It was a six week trip. Maybe. For only 10 pounds. Ten quick. Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. What an opportunity. Yeah. How so many they, people moved from oh, a lot of people. Yeah. Cause I mean, after the, I mean, even though it's, 20 odd years after the war, it was still, it was still a rough time in England, like getting the economy back up. And they were really, it was a struggle for like working class people to earn any real money to survive. And so a lot of people took them up and moved to Australia. And what was the promise when they got there? No real promise, just like opportunity, you know, the opportunity of, of, uh, better, better jobs, lower cost of living. Yeah, for sure. Probably some subsidized housing, I imagine. Um, and they moved to Perth in Western Australia, which is, yeah, admittedly, that's a, a long, long way away from Adelaide. It's a three day bus ride. <laughs> a lot of people in the US don't understand that Australia is just as big as the United States. Huge. Yeah. If you've ever taken a domestic flight in Australia, yeah, yeah. yeah it's definitely on par with the US. It's a greyhound across from Perth to Adelaide across the Nullarbor, which is like no trees, you know. Just sat in a greyhound for three days, which was pretty painful. I bet. Yeah. yeah, looking at nothing the whole way. Yeah, but yeah, then I was in Australia at, at university. Yeah, I met some great, great people. Was in school at the, at the same time as a lot of good winemakers. Um, and yeah, it was just it was great. It's probably the best thing. Yeah, best thing I could do. I imagine. Like just looking back at it, it was every part of it I enjoyed, and it was just like, yeah, this is it. Cool. I've never been to Adelaide. Is, is there a big wine region there? Oh, yeah, like what was it like uh, when you were there? Sir Clare Valley, um, Adelaide Hills, that they were all just outside of Adelaide. And what was the scene like? This is in the eighties. Great. No, this was in the nineties. In the late nineties. You're not that old, sir. Yeah, no, <laughs> that was a great. It was great. I mean, it was a great food scene. It's very like cosmopolitan. Yeah, a really good crowd who was who was studying enology at the same time. Whose whose parents had very successful wineries in Australia. It was definitely that time when Australian wine was like shining. Everyone wanted to get drink Australian wine. And they were very successful at marketing themselves as a brand. Everyone as in the whole world? Definitely everyone in in the United Kingdom and Europe, for sure. What was it was just the new new world region? Yeah, it was just I think it was just because they really were the some of the first people to come up with like varietal labeling, you know? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, what do you mean by that? Like naming something Cabernet Sauvignon rather than like just the name of the Shatter. Oh, really? And like coming up with like clever designs and labels versus just uh, a name you've never heard of with a picture of a Shatter on a, on a white background. That makes sense because I feel like a lot of European wine, a lot of them are Chateaus and I could see how in the past they just wouldn't, so they wouldn't include the name of the grape. No, just no, so- red wine from Chateau. Yeah, or old bowl. I mean, you could tell it was red wine. It probably didn't even say it was red wine on it. Really? Yeah. So the consumer had no expectation of what it would taste like. I had no whatsoever. idea what it was. I mean, you had things, and even still, you have to rely on someone else's like expert opinion to buy those wines. Like you, unless you've been very fortunate and get to try them when they're still in a barrel or something like 
Yeah, I was talking to Joe Flynn about that on a previous episode. You really do need an education to pick wine. States nowadays and worldwide, you go somewhere, you have no idea what the prices mean, what the labels mean, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So I didn't know Australia was the first country to really pioneer that. Really to embrace it. Yeah, and they were at that time back in the early 2000s. I mean, they were like crushing it with their sales. I mean, they had all of the, you know, Penfolds wines and wines with like kangaroos on them. Um, like Peter Lehman's wines were doing really well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, um, and in the UK, at the time, the UK was the largest wine consumer in the world in terms of value. They were buying more wine than anyone else in the entire world. Like, and so a lot of the market, the Australian market went to the UK, not so much into like France because they couldn't have to drink Australian wine, but certainly into more Northern Europe, I would say. Did you have a healthy distaste of the French growing up? <laughs> we spent a lot of holidays in France. I bet. Beautiful uh, country. Well, I guess you could just get on the ferry, you know, like a roll-on, roll-off ferry. It's only an hour and a half on the ferry across with your car. And then you just drive down to the south of France. And, you're right. You know, they're, you're there in like a sheet for a couple of weeks, which is basically just an Airbnb these days. And they're hanging out on the beach, which is very nice. And they would never import wine from anywhere but there, but their own local region. Okay. Is that still true today? I think so, unless you're in like Paris or somewhere. But even if you're in like, we were in Toulouse, well, quite a long time ago now, but I mean, it was all Languedoc wine. It was, it was a local wine that you were drinking, which was great. I mean, I think that's kind of how it should be, to be honest. Yeah. If, in if one you, way, you kind of call that pretentious or whatever, but in the other sense, it's exactly what many places are trying to do, maybe not with wine, but with food and just keeping everything local. It's how it should be, right? Local. You should be consuming locally, which is what unfortunately doesn't happen in Colorado. You know? It does not. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, it's uh, everyone embraces like local craft beer and craft whiskey and, you know, uh, other spirits, but they really haven't embraced Colorado wine, which is a shame. And it's a shame because... You know, Colorado wine is more Colorado than Colorado beer or Colorado whiskey. I mean, it's the grapes are grown here, like the rye, the barley, the hops are not grown here. It's a great so point. It's, it's like, why don't people get behind it? That's a great point. Yeah, with beer, you're mail ordering all your ingredients. Yeah. It comes from wherever. Sometimes you have Colorado growing hops, and that's a big deal. Very, very few and far between. Yeah. But to your point, literally with wine, everything comes from here. Yeah. So, like, if, if restaurants truly are local, you know, and, and hyper-local, then they should be supporting Colorado wine more than they do. Why don't that's, they? That's just been an uphill battle for the last 20 years. Like it's something that I've struggled with uh, forever. Um, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I think they don't do it just through lack of education. You know, there's not that many Colorado winemakers walking into to restaurants and spending time to talk to the wait staff and the, the buyers, the songs, the owners, the chefs, just to kind of educate them about it. Why is that? Are they just too low volume still? Yeah, I think probably a bit of, yeah, too low volume price point. Probably don't want to compromise on their price point, which you have to if you want to sell in a restaurant. You have to give them a lower. For sure, because they're going to mark it up for you. You're selling wholesale, yeah, versus selling direct. But it's definitely like a marketing expense, really, that you should factor in. You're probably only making, you know, three or four bucks on a bottle that you sell, but 
it's worth it to, to have them, everyone in the restaurant start talking about it. You only make three or four dollars a bottle when you sell to a restaurant? A hot stuff, for sure. It, if that, maybe like three bucks a bottle. Really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know the margin was that slim. Oh, so it depends on your cost of goods, right? But certainly I know for my wines, which, you know, are, are, are certainly expensive to, to farm, at least right now. And like everything that goes into it, the label and stuff, it's, it's like, it's, it's an expensive bottle of wine. But is there something significant about getting on the menu? You say, like you say, people start talking about it. Do they? Does the average customer order the wine and now it's... Yeah, because most people are introduced to wine through restaurants. Like most people go to a restaurant and see the buy the glass list. And they're like, that's their, that's their least risk, you know, uh, least risky way to be introduced to wine is buying a glass Right. Before they like, you know, like when it's Bible. So if it's 12 bucks, it's like, okay, I don't know anything about this wine. It's from Colorado. 12 bucks. Okay. Give it a go. Interesting. You know, and then, and then of course they like, if they like it, they buy a bottle and have it at the restaurant. And, and hopefully the wait staff will talk about it and tell the story and know the story and be passionate about it because there's so many wines they can choose from. Right. Unlimited. So, there's no other industry like the wine industry. There's no Coca-Cola of the wine industry. There's no brand leader. The, the biggest players gala is still with less than 1% of the world's wine industry. There's a, you know, there's a million brands competing for shelf space. It's like such a difficult industry to be in. Yet here we are. Here we are. Well, one of the things that amazes me about you is that you're this worldly guy. Grew up in Europe, traveled, studied winemaking across the world in Australia, New Zealand. And the first time, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the first time you ever came to the U.S. was to Palisade, Colorado? Actually, no. Like, as part of my uh, traveling, I, um, I'm, I, I spent maybe three or four months in the U.S. traveling around. Okay. So before I came, like a few years before I came here, and I was, uh, have you heard of, I don't know if it exists anymore. It's called Auto Drive Away. You would relocate cars for people. I don't know the company, but I've heard of this system. So I would like relay. I would basically be like, well, you would sign up for this company called Auto Drive Away, and you'd be like, they would they would send out. Well, I guess it was before emails, really. Like they would send out. I don't know. Like a, you would go into their local branch, and they'd be like, well, we've got a car that needs to go from like. Boston to New Orleans, and they want it there in eleven days. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I can work that. with that. That's a nice road trip. Yeah, eleven right, days. So, like, that's that's what we did. And uh, you and your mates, you had a couple of mates. No, actually, you? me and a girlfriend at the time. Okay, yeah, we um, and, and like we couldn't believe it when we showed up. It was it was one of those BMW Z3s. Oh, and they were like, this uh, is yeah. pretty sweet. <laughs> and we went down. We just followed the Appalachian Trail. Oh, Smoky Mountains, amazing. the Blue Ridge Mountains. Would they pay for your gas and everything? No, you have to pay for your gas. Okay. But they, and, and like you, you have to complete the trip in a certain number of days without putting on crazy miles. Right. You can't go to LA first. Yeah. You can't <laughs> <laughs> um, but wait, yeah. wait, how did you discover that idea? Other friends were doing it. You know, the old Lonely Planet books. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, it was in there. Oh, okay. So we just like, yeah. Man, what a just, great hack. 
It was easy way to get some wheels. All you had to do was pay for gas. I'm guessing. Do they pay you at the end or no, you don't, you don't get any money. You just get the car. You just get a car, which is like just a vehicle to travel, right? We just camped all the way, get pretty much all over the US. Wow. I think we went down the, well, first of all, we went up the like Maine and stuff. And then we came down, you know, following the Appalachian Trail all the way to New Orleans. And then we went up to like Kansas across through Denver. Definitely went through Denver Canyon for sure. You remember that? Yeah. And then into Utah, and we did, you know, you did like arches and natural bridges and of course canyon yeah. lands and all of the Bryce and Zion, all amazing of the, places. Yeah. yeah, and then up to Vegas yeah, briefly, and across Death Valley, and then all the way up to Portland, Oregon, and sure. all the way down the West Coast. Like, so we, I saw a lot of it. What were your impressions of America after you did that whole road expensive trip? Expensive place to travel. Really, even with sure. the car stuff. Even with the car, yeah. What were you just like accommodation? Like if you was challenging, like hostels here seem to have a bad, bad rep, but in Australia, they're all set up travelers. They're for the most part, fairly clean, safe. And you know, there's a kitchen, there's a swimming pool and there's, you know, it's kind of set up here. Not so much. Interesting. Hostel seems to mean something different. Yeah. Yeah, Cause we always imagine Europe and I guess Australia in certain times being way more expensive than the U S at least I do. Especially with the pounds, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 my experience was that it was tough to like spend less than forty bucks a day. Wow, yeah, okay. traveling in the US. That was your back budget then. back then. Yeah, in like that was like two thousand. Okay, yeah, and so I guess what maybe what I was thinking of the first place you moved was directly to Palisade. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so how did that come? To be? That seems very random. Yeah, so. Because you didn't stop here. You remember Glenwood Canyon, but did you stop at Palisade? We definitely drove through it. Yeah. You took I-70, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I must be, we drove through it. That's yeah. right. Well, that's what you did back in the day. Even yeah. as back in 2012, you just drove right through here on yeah. your way to Moab or something from Denver when I you know, lived in Denver. That's yeah, exactly. But it's, it's just so much water to offer here. But um, yeah, I uh, I was, um, I'd, fin- I'd graduated, uh, I'd worked in, in uh, Northern Victoria. So a few harvests, just North Melbourne. I moved back to London briefly with some friends and was working like for Eurostar, just tempting. And I applied, I saw a job advertised for a winemaker in Palisade, Colorado. I obviously didn't even know there were wineries here. Essentially just emailed them a resume and a cover letter like you used to. And, uh, three days later, the owner of Canyon Winsellers had at the time, no longer in existence, but, uh, yeah, he emailed me, offered me the job and I moved from London to Grand Junction. What year was this? Uh, it was the 9th of September, 2001. 2001. Yeah. 9th of September. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So you got here two days before September 11th. Uh-huh. What was that like for you? You just made it in. It's surreal to be honest. Yeah. Like, I mean, just probably like for everyone in the, in the middle of the country. You know, just like, can't, can't believe that's happening. I was in high school in Philly at the time, Philly area. And I still, that's of my generation. It's like, I remember exactly what I did that day. Yeah. Remember what class I was in when we first found out in the morning. I can remember what I did that day, what I did that night. Yeah. All very clear. Wow. So you made it by two days. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it wasn't going to New York, the plane, is it? So right. Yeah. It would have been fun. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, 
it was definitely an odd time to come. But um, and, and also just because it's such a massive difference, right? Like London is a massive city. Well, you know, they call Grand Junction kind of the London of the West sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad then. How did you adjust to that? (laughs) Not now either, bro. (laughs) Uh, So how was that adjustment for you? Because you're coming to a new country. It's not that Europe is totally different than America, but big, big change. Oh, yeah, it was was tough. I mean, I first... um, I mean, I, I was like thrown right into harvest and I was living at the boss's house and he lived just below Powderwood. So it's very nice. That's nice. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> For the first six weeks. So you were living up in Mesa, basically. Yeah, further. You yeah, know, but just literally just below, like two miles below Powderwood. So you were not living down here in the back. No, wow. but just commuting in, you know, and, and hadn't even experienced Grand Junction, to be honest. Uh, and then um, after a while, I, I lived in the old motel. Can't remember what it's called. Like on the, when you come in on I 70 East, like he kind of wraps around it. There used to be this kind of sketchy old motel with like wooden cabins. Yeah, yeah. Palisade. Oh, yeah. they just reopened that. Yeah, they just changed it. That's like, right. Yeah. yeah. Like six weeks. Oh, no kidding. It's a bit weird. And then, um, yeah, just found the space in Grand Junction, like an apartment, like off of Horizon Drive because I didn't know any better. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I got slowly got introduced to, to people who had grown up here and so, whose parents had actually moved to Grand Junction as surgeons right back, you know, in the probably early nineties when a lot of, um, a lot of doctors were incentivized to move to less desirable locations. Right. And, um, yeah. I wish they did that for writers. That'd be great. <laughs> Any kind of incentivation. You get. But yeah, met some great people. What was Palisade like back then? Palisade was cool back then. Well, there were a lot of young winemakers. Uh, at like Garfield Estate, at Two Rivers, Grand River, uh, at Canyon Wind. That there were about the same number of restaurants as there are now. There's a really <laughs> cool coffee shop on the corner where the bike shop is, which you can. Like an English guy who used to roast his own coffee. And that was that was a great place to kind of hang out and you know, hang out with all the winemakers and inevitably just end up in Grand Junction somewhere uh, in the evening. That's kind of surprising that they're the same number of restaurants that is now. Yeah. You would think, I haven't analyzed the numbers, but you would think there's more people around now and tourism has increased a lot. Tourism certainly increased. I don't know if like the number of houses in Palisade has increased. Of course. Yeah. You definitely. Know? That's true. There's yeah. certainly, uh, you know, there's certainly still a, a lack of accommodation for people to overnight in Palisade. So. You know, and it's, and it's a very seasonal town, so that makes it a challenge. Were you bored when you were here, or were you pretty much yeah, deep I was in the applying for jobs? Okay, basically, <laughs> um, I had some good friends, but we would all we did basically was hike Mount Garfield every day, every day, two years, and then been pretty fit. Go to the brewery in 2001 when Tom Hennessy opened it, who is a bit of a legend in the brewing terms. He wrote the book um, Frankenbrew. And the beer was amazing. Like, it's such a, it was a great place. So we would go hike Garfield, go to the Palace of Brewery, and then go into Junction. We'd do a few car bombs on the way. Car bombs? You remember it? Pint, half, half pint of Guinness with some Baileys. Like, and you drop the Baileys Jameson in. And Chuck. Thrown in there. Love that. Yeah. Should we and do one right go, now? Go hit up. Like, this spot. <laughs> I do. Do you have one? <laughs> uh, I could probably put it together. <laughs> yeah, and then we would head out to Junction and head up, you know. The usual places like Gladstones before it was uh, the Alehouse. 
the Spotlight Lounge and Seven. Do that kind of stuff. You did what you did. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we're burying the lead a little bit here. Obviously, you went on to move to Denver and start Infinite Monkey Theorem, which, from my perspective, brought you a lot of fame and notoriety within the wine industry. So explain a little bit how that happened. How'd you go from Palisade to Denver? We'll get into all the canning, but how did you move to start an urban winery? Was there a mantra or theory behind that? Did you walk into that opportunity by accident? Was it something you'd been planning? No, I mean, it was something that had been forming in my mind for, for many years. I mean, even during my tenure at Canyon Wind, I was consulting for maybe 20 wineries in Colorado. 20? And New Mexico and Missouri and Arizona. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive, mate. Uh, one of them was uh, Sutcliffe Vineyards down in Cortez. Okay. Uh, and I, so I ultimately moved down to Durango and, and made one, John Sutcliffe, down uh, Macamo Canyon. And um, so that's kind of where my Cortez part was. The story um, starts. And that was, that was fascinating. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, he is, uh, you know, this eccentric Englishman who's had a, a, a very storage. Like career and it's hilarious, basically. You guys so, had a bond, obviously. Yeah, well, I, well, I used to, uh, so I'd make the wine, but also I, I would sell the wine. So we would do many road trips together, me and John, selling wine. And then ultimately, like in 2006, one of my, my best friend, friend, actually my best man at my wedding, later on, he was doing a harvest with me down there called David Roy, whose parents were surgeons and Grand Junction, and because we were like, you know, this is this we got something real here. This is like awesome. Like, and so I moved to Denver to sell Sutcliffe wines, and I would drive back and forth with my eighty-eight four, and I like fit sixty cases of wine in it, uh, over Wolf Creek and stuff, in like the snow. And I would just drive around, and I was like knocking on doors. It was when all the good restaurants were just starting, like Table Six just opened. Fruition wasn't even open yet. Like I was there the day before they got their liquor license for Porta Tardi, tasting him on wine, and that that liquor guy comes in and he's like, uh, "There's no, there's not allowed to be any wine in here right now. You don't have your license." You know, and it was it was a really cool time because all these restaurants were opening that that were really genuinely like farm to table restaurants, and they needed a good Colorado wine to complete that instead of having a California wine or something. Yeah, and so. It kind of dawned on me over time that it was stupid having a winery in the middle of nowhere where all the people and all the good restaurants were basically on the front range. And so things weren't working out at, at Sucky Vineyards. I mean, I look back now, like me and John, we hated each other. We fell out. I didn't speak to him for 12 years. We, 12. Kissed, we kissed and made up recently. Wow. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a toxic relationship at the time. But now, I mean, we're, you know, we hang out, we, we talk about it and it's, and it's great. We get hungry. But, um, this plan was formulating to start an urban winery in Denver, just because that's where the people were to bring the fruit over, do all the production there. I mean, if it worked for a crop, why wouldn't it work for a winery? And you were just thinking of this all in your head as you're working out here. Yeah. yeah I'm like, why am I doing business plan? <laughs> and I was helped by the small business development center in, in Durango and it was awesome. And, uh, like, well, yeah, just one day that, you know, some, something happened at work and it's like, okay, I'm done. Let's, let's go for it. 
And um, yeah, moved to Denver. I'd already found this space in Fifth and Santa Fe, in the Santa Fe Art District. So Quonset Hub basically bought an old truck, like an, an old Dodge, the only lights that worked on it were the smoke cloud lights. And me and my now wife, we drove like 20,000 miles in two months and picked up used equipment from all over the country and stuff. Love and worry for like, I think it was 180 grand. Wow. So you um, bootstrapped it. Oh, big time. You're, yeah. you're like the Craigslist before I do that now, you know, hawking yeah. Craigslist for equipment all the it time. It's crazy. And it was back when like gas was like 550 a gallon. So like picking up 550. Equipment, yeah. Picking up, picking up. And I don't remember why. Well, I'm actually probably because it was 2008. Yeah. Recession know, and all that good stuff that happened. The whole mortgage crisis thing. Yeah. yeah. There was no option but to go do it yourself found this kind of cool old like Quonset Har in a back alley of Sanford Drive and kind of coined the term urban winemaking or back alley winemaking at its finest. And so your goal was just, was it specifically, I just want to get closer to my clients or? For the most part, but also to shake up the wine industry to really kind of disrupt it and like be like, you can make good wine anywhere. You don't need to be next to the vineyard and the rolling hills. Like and all this shit that like is very flowery that doesn't really matter, you know. Like yeah. when it comes down to it, because the customer doesn't necessarily care about any of that. They just want to know if it's good or bad, right? And they might want to take a trip to wine country, but they'll do that once a year. The other three hundred sixty days of their life in the city, they want to just drink good wine, and if it's prepared right there, great. Exactly, it is hyper local, so local. Was anybody else doing an urban winery at the time? There were other wineries in Denver, but none of them embraced the fact that they were in a city, in my opinion. There was like these Tuscan-style facades drawn on their walls. It's like, well, you're not in Tuscany. You're in a city, you know, so we put like graffiti on the walls. We embraced, you know, like the, the local kind of counterculture, got to know those guys. And, um, you know, I mean, the label was like, it was a work of art. It was like this Bansky-esque chimpanzee with these infinite triangles in his eyes. It was, it was actually the, the first label that was a recipe for the wine on the back of the label. Really? Like every single thing that went into that wine was on the wine in detail, nothing hidden. Like it was, it was all spooks. It's like the notebook, these like colored dots, like an old kind of, kind of what you call them, the kind of brown books they used to make notes in. Okay, kind of reflected that. And the the uh, label designer, he he was nominated for a Grammy for his Chester French album cover, oh. and he designed the Infinite Logic Film label. And it was like, yeah, that was it. Was really just make wine in the city because I wanted to be in a city, you know, and, and I wanted to eat at good restaurants, and I wanted to get the wine into every restaurant. I wanted to create a brand that people would. You know, they everyone would be like, oh, you're going to money for it. We know that. Well, you succeeded. We all do know that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think they did a good job. I think it's, it's certainly, at least back then, um, everyone would know that it was Denver winery. Not necessarily a Colorado one, but certainly a Denver one. Were you inspired? Because 2008 was probably the craft beer boom at the same time where Denver is sort of exploding with craft breweries, a lot of them counterculture, very neighborhoody garage door style. Yeah. Was that what you were envisioning? 
I, I'm just trying to make, maybe I'm rock, but making a connection between what you told me about your push bike days where you thought wine was so overblown, so expensive. And now you want to open this graffiti style tasting room. Was there some connection there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, across, I mean, in many ways, a lot of what, you know, I did was borrowed from the, from the craft beers. Sure. Like, it was certainly back then, it was when a lot of tap rooms were opening up, like on every corner, it seemed like a new brewery, you know, and we would spend time going and visiting them, becoming friends with them, sharing ideas and, and giving them barrels to some wine barrels to ferment some beer in or using some hops and some wine or, you know, really just doing everything that was just shouldn't be done according to the purists, you know, and but deliberately so. That was the whole point, was to make it relevant to this. It's so, it was so like kind of almost boring, the wine industry. You know, it was, it was like there's a formula for doing everything. It's just, you know, let's, let's shake it up. Let's do, let's do everything differently. Let's do it well. Let's come up with a brand. Let's, um, yeah, let's try to blow it up, you know. Did you get in a lot of pushback from traditional wine people? Oh, for sure. Even in the Colorado wine industry. All the time. What would they say? Just oh, they were just, you know, they would just kind of poo poo it. Yeah, and, and even like cool up the uh, TTB, the alcohol tobacco firearms, and because they thought they believed that I was mislabeling my grapes as being Colorado, they thought that they were Colorado because the wines were just so good. Oh, look at that! So they could, yeah. So I had, so they cool. Yeah, I got like audited by the TTB really early on because. They told me they were like, someone thinks you're not, you're not making Colorado wine. And I was like, I, uh, I called up Kaibab, Savage, you know, Savage Spectrum, who back then was just a grower. He was like, well, I sell you the grapes, you know, and you talk about me and I sell grapes to other people because you're making it. Yeah. And he, he, he wrote them a letter saying, yes, I sold grapes to Ben Parsons at the end of the monkey bear, you know. Oh, that's that sucks that they were trying to yeah, get you exactly, out or whatever. Yeah. And there was a lot of that, I think, back then. I think there's there's less of it now. Uh, but yeah, it was. I mean, people were just like, "What's he doing?" <laughs> and what about the people that accepted it? Did you find it opened wine up to more people? Did you have clientele that you wouldn't necessarily find at a fancy winery? Absolutely, absolutely. Like on, when we were on Santa Fe, it was only busy on my like, first Fridays because it was the Santa Fe Art District. So it's not like we had like walking traffic or anything. So it was all like wholesale business, restaurants and, and liquor stores and stuff. But like just that we offered these like barrel tastings where it'd be like 50 bucks and you could come in with your friends and do a barrel tasting. And I would, I would spend like an hour and a half, two hours with these people and get like into real detail. And people would walk out and be like, wow, I just learned more than I ever learned about wine. In an hour and a half, and I really enjoyed myself, you know. And he just gave me a restaurant recommendation and called his buddy up to like get me a table. You know, that was that was awesome. Like, and that was that was a lot of fun, you know. Back then, I mean, I was thirty when I opened IMT. Thirty, yeah. So is like, that you're looking back nostalgically, like that was yeah, so long I mean, ago? That was, great, that was a great time, especially early on, like where it's just like you were you were. You were young enough for it to fail and move on. Like there was no family, there was no family, there was no wife, there was no kids. There was it's like you're living paycheck to paycheck or not even. But it doesn't matter. You just wanted to do something good. 
how did you move into, because you're, you were innovative with the urban winery, but perhaps you're even more known for helping the industry of wine move into cans and introducing the canned wine. I think that was 2011, 2012 or 2011 is when we launched. So how did you get such a wild idea to put wine in a can? Well, it wasn't, I mean, people have honestly been canning wine back as early as like the seventies, but it never really taken off. Cause wait, look, to move back one second, I remember and just popped in my head too. When you guys opened, you served the wine on draft, right? You weren't oh, yeah, serving we were, bottles at the urban wine. Yeah, we, we did. So okay. that was a much different consumer experience too, because now it's just on tap. Yeah, I mean, we were the first, pretty much, I would say, the first winer in the US to put wine in a keg. Um, Charles Beeler, uh, and like the Gotham Project, they they were up there as well. Uh, that must have saved your costs immensely at labor. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, much. Just. Yeah, I mean, I remember like Euclid Hall opened just off Larimer Square. Like James Jasinski and um, Beth Courage opened this. They had they have Rio Hall and Larimer Square. They opened uh, uh, Euclid Hall. They were the first restaurant in Colorado to put one on tap, you know. And it was uh, it was before like the trend started. It was before Free Flow had opened, which is like a uh, like a kegging company you can send wine to to get kegged. You know, I was I was speaking to all the restaurants who were really excited about the idea because it was just kind of environmentally sound idea. I mean, draft is definitely the most sustainable way to serve any product. To be honest, yeah. You know, I was I I was friends with like the guy, the Canon guys, uh, Apple, who then left and became the MicroStar guys, who the keg guys, and like we were we were at a lot of restaurants to pouring keg wine. It was really. Uh, it was really kind of groundbreaking back then. And, and like, actually, uh, presented to like, we, we presented a bill to the state legislator to allow cake wine. And I had to testify, which was totally cool. Really? Uh, you yeah. had to change the law? To yeah, do I that? had to change the law in order to do it. Because it was too high alcohol? Uh, no, because it wasn't allowed in the state of Colorado. I can't remember the name of the bill. But it was really, um, it was, it was really, uh, nerve wracking, but also exciting to get up there and talk about it. And I remember at the end of my, my testimony or whatever you called it, they were like, that was the most elegant testimony we've ever heard. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you really made it out. It's like, well, you know, it's true, you know. And then a lot of people started getting more. And then Free Flow, you know, opened in, in, uh, California. Uh, my, my good friend at the time, John Schlegel had just opened Snooze. On Larimer, which is now oh the Brecken place, place. And, yeah, they're everywhere now. And well, at the time, like he, he was, he asked me like, how do you, how do we do cake sparkling wine? I was like, well, this is how we do it. And so we were in every snooze in the United States selling selling our snooze booze, snooze as booze. it was called. And um, yeah, I mean, it was like a lot, you know, back for like this was like 2010 to 15, maybe every. Everyone who had snooze was drinking infinite multifamily. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. And then the can. So you just moved. Yeah, Did yeah. you think of that before? Was that always part of the plan or was that a, no, it wasn't, it wasn't really always part of the plan, but it was, it was definitely potentially the way to, to get to a point where you could like, as a, as a owner, you could like exit, right? You could exit the company. Because you had created this 
blue ocean, right? Because no one else was doing it. It's like we it was it, it was a it was a decision that was made just to focus on the can. Um because we were the first people to do it. People really must have thought you were crazy doing that. They did. In fact a lot of people uh, a lot of like the liquor stores that that were carrying like the bottle of wine, which was in Colorado wine. Like they were um they were like oh, it'll never take off. But it but it did. I mean it, it, it took a while. And there was a lot of challenges along the way. I mean, putting one in the can isn't something that just happens. Does it age the same as in a bottle? No, no at all. I mean, it doesn't really age well at all, to be honest. Um, although we were, we did all of the, uh, well, we did some of the, the test research for, um, for the wine group, which is maybe the second largest wine company in the world, uh, when they put, uh, flip flop into cans and, um, James Foster, who's the winemaker over there, he came out to Denver to meet me. And he was like, well, how does it age? And I was like, oh. I went back and I found this black muscat that we made that we launched uh, up at Aspen Food and Wine in 2011. And it was like five years old in can. And I was like, well, let's see how it just <laughs> And I opened it. And actually, it was really good. He was like, what? what? He couldn't believe it was that good. But that, but most canned wines do not age that well, in my opinion. So what was your idea behind it? Did you think, because it's Colorado, people are going to take these on hikes or people are going to yeah, want to I drink mean, them outside? Sense, right? like, I think the winery concept makes sense in Colorado. It was embracing city culture. I think cans make sense in Colorado. It's, it's all about accessibility, proximity to the outdoors. It's the use occasion of the beverage. Um, it, it comes from a, you know, we're a craft beer state. Everyone's used to like drinking products out of cans. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar Blues pioneered uh, craft beer in the can. Yeah, he's on my phone. I mean, I spoke to Dad. You know, like about he's about, a wild guy. Yeah, about canning wine. Like, I mean, in fact, we partnered with Oscar Blues when we always through an event up at Aspen Food Wine because of that. Like, they they were the pioneers of craft beer, the best beer you could make in the can. And everyone thought he was stupid too. Yeah, because beer was the same way as wine. It was always seen the good beers are in bottles and the crappy beers in a can. So why would you put crap beer in a can? And they were like, well, there's a million reasons why you would do it. Yeah, totally. yeah. They went with it. Yeah. And Dale, had he has the perfect personality to be the pioneer in that way. I think you yeah. do as well. So what was the reaction when you launched these? Uh, I mean, well, it was it was cool. Like uh, it, it was launched up at Aspen Food and Wine. We did a seminar of what wine to pair with a taco cart uh, by Richard Betts and Master Sam. And on the pan- I was on the panel, and it was it was it was great. I mean, we did this we did this uh, seminar, and it was actually Ramey who started Comida, which is like a very successful taco place in Denver and up Boulder initially. It got to my wine, because Charles presented his Gotham project cake wine and it was canned wine. And uh, Charles put a pencil in the can, shotgunned it, threw it over his shoulder. I love that. Yeah. Have you tried that? Oh, I've shotgunned a lot of cans of wine. So. That sounds horrible. You get used to it. <laughs> Probably I'll, wouldn't do that. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You recently sold your interests. And or stepped out. From, I stepped away. It was time. From, uh, I didn't. I didn't sell my interest, but um, 
you know, after 11 years, taking it to 100,000 cases, distributed in 42 states, you know, really kind of pioneering the urban winery movement across the West, the canned wine being one of the 40 under 40 wine enthusiast magazine, most influential people in the wine industry. You were? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Being Vision Wine magazines, the 40 wines that changed the way we drink next to like Lafitte and Petrus and, you know, I didn't put a monkey beer. It was like, you know, I can't, I couldn't take it any further. It was, it was the right time to kind of move on, you know? Yeah. I mean, you did, I have a stat here I want to read because it blew my mind. So with canned wine in 2012, this or U.S. sales, uh, canned wine was two $2 million in sales. In 2018, $69 million. Yeah, that's pretty good growth. Yeah. Uh, I'd say so. Yeah. So did you ever anticipate it would become that big? I mean, yeah. I think we did. You did? Yeah, for sure. Like, Just uh, convenience of, I mean, for me, like, you know, Julia loves wine. And whenever we go someplace, honestly, it's a pain in the ass because I throw a couple beers in my backpack, but she's lugging along this bottle of wine or whatever, or it's breakable. So canned wine is so easy. It's just great for the Colorado lifestyle of throwing it. We were just at the Rockies game last weekend. They sold canned wine there. She thought it tasted just on par with anything else. And it's just way more convenient to serve wine in those kind of situations. Yeah. I I think it's definitely about use occasion. I mean, you know, I think, I think there's a, a lot of potential issues with it, which I experienced, but um, I think it's in theory, it's still a, a very good way of you know, selling wine, at least white wines and rose wines. I don't think, I don't think red wine makes much sense to can spillers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a vessel for a certain segment, it wouldn't yeah, replace the like young wines that are ready to drink that are not going to age, right? And, and that's it because there's it, it doesn't age once it, it gets in the can. There's no oxygen there. There's unique challenges about the lining of the cans, the interaction of the product with the cans, and then, then transporting cans, even though they weigh less, they're very flimsy. There's, there's a lot of potential like problems with it. But, um, you know, it's, it was cool. I mean, like Frontier Airlines put it on, um, and it was an epic plane. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a, a good marketing tool. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. We did a lot of firsts. Well, I love talking to successful people just because of their stories, but also for this kind of point that we're reaching there. Uh, I'd love a little bit more of that. And we'll get into this in a second. I feel like there's two paths successful people take once they become successful. They either love that success and they just stay in that position forever because they become the king. And why would you want to step down? Or they do what you did and just kind of walk away and say, you know what? I've taken this as far as it can go. I need a new project to do. Was that a tough decision for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was my baby. You know, it was definitely tough. I mean, it's, uh, but like looking back, it was the right thing to do. During my tenure at IMT, I was married, two kids, which are now seven and nine. For me, from a growth perspective, it was, it was about like getting back into the vineyard. It was about trying to make the very best wine you can. It was about being hands on with the farming. You know, it was about, it was, it was more about let's put Colorado on the map, making some great wine and, and really, you know, we looked, we looked really hard about what to do. After I left IMT, it was like, should I move back to Europe? Should I just go make wine in California? 
Yeah, I want to read you a quote that I found because okay. I did a little, obviously, research. Yeah. This was a quote from you from an article back in 2019 talking about how you had were moving on from Infinite Monkey. And your quote is, I'm able to travel anywhere in the world and really pursue my passion, which has always been wide banking. That's really what I want to get back to. I'm feeling kind of giddy, to be honest. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know if anyone would describe you as giddy, Ben, but. Uh, oh, I remember that. I mean, it was, um, I was outside the Lime Height Hotel in Aspen, Ben Wine, when one spectator called me. And I was just like, yeah, you know, like, I could literally go anywhere. And we talk, talked about it a long time. And I mean, it's like, well, should we go to France? Should we move to France? Should yeah. we start a winery in South France? And then, because we'd spent a lot of time there, and then we were like, well, that would be tough to start a winery in South France. Like, no one's gonna, uh, who's gonna, who's gonna support it? Like, he's gonna, you know, how are you gonna, how are you gonna build it? Who's gonna buy it? Like, you know, that's all those chat. Unless you went to California, don't really want to move to California. Don't really want to work for anyone else. I want to kind of do my own thing. And here you are coming back to Pali. So yeah, come full circle. I didn't take the dirt with me. But I just love that because it says, I'm able to travel anywhere in the world. Yeah. And you had this whole blank canvas, and now here you are in Palisade, Colorado, where you started. But also, I'm assuming you tell me, but a lot of it probably had to do with the similar mission of keep continuing to put Colorado on the map. Yeah, well, I mean, I think over the years, like I've been really, I've been like a champion of the Colorado one industry for sure, and I think a lot of people got introduced to Colorado wine through wines that I've made. And I think it's elevated wine industry in general. And so, yeah, moving back to, to the Western Slope, I mean, it was kind of the path of least resistance, right? Like if you're going to start a winery, moving to a new place where you don't know anyone could be a challenge. Like certainly from a sales perspective, even though people move on in the restaurant industry all the time, uh, you know, I was in Denver all last week and I was selling wine left, right, and center to all these great new restaurants. But there were people that had been at restaurants previously, you know. Yeah, right. they do so with you. It was a lot of fun. I mean, and I stayed with my good friend Justin Brunson, who opened Masterpiece Deli and Old Major and all these restaurants in the past and just kind of cruised around and slailed times selling one out of the back of the truck. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, let's talk about your new project, I guess you could say. I have many questions, but Infinite Monkey Theorem, the meaning you had the name was endless possibilities, right? And this kind of idea of randomness, I guess, a little bit, but infinite possibilities. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, your winery is called The Ordinary Fellow. Yeah. So talk us through, are these names representing you at different points in your life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, there's like a humbleness there for sure. Because um, you shook it up before and now you're humbled. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think just like, you know, you're not like this cocky kid anymore. Yeah. You're just, you know, you're more comfortable in yourself. You're like, I mean, I know I make good wine. Yeah. It's, it's, I can confirm. That's, it that's, <laughs> that's a given, you know, but like the, na- the name was more of like a homage to, to where I'm from and an old pub that I used to hang out with when I was a kid, my dad and. And just like a place of like a good pub should be where at the end of the day you go, you, you have a few beers, you put the world to rights, you, you, you know, you, you enjoy yourself. It's relaxing. 
it's got good food, it's got good energy. And obviously it's, it's far from ordinary, but the, uh, the, the silhouette on the label is actually George V, who was the last king of England before Charles was crowned the other week. And, um, and like he always considered himself an ordinary fellow. And the word ordinary has changed in many ways. It used to be up to a certain standard and everyone would be proud to be that. And then it was, it was kind of warped by marketing firms, agencies. And then instead of having your, you know, like F250, you had your F250 super cool, you know, you had, you had the next one up and it was like ordinary was the base model. And then there was always something better, but. It meant being up to a certain standard, you know, and that could have been excellent, right? right? It's dependent on what that standard was. But the interesting thing is that Ordinary Fellow kind of is an urban winery. Obviously, we're not yeah, in the yeah. setting, I mean, but it is, cause it's, as far as Palisade goes, it's yeah. one of the most urban wineries I can think of. Yeah, and that was probably more by accident, to be honest. It obviously hadn't, hasn't escaped me that we don't have a vineyard in Palisade. Our vineyards are at Cortez, which is 189 miles southwest of us. But Cortez, as beautiful as it might be, there's not as many tourists going to visit wineries. So it did make sense to put the winery in Palisade. And, and like that, that building, the old United Fruit Growers Packing Shed. I mean, I remember sitting at the brewery when Tom was the, the brewer back in 2001, staring at that shed and it was empty. It was like, this is like the best and the biggest building in Palace. Why is it empty? I agree. When I first moved here in 2019, it was also vacant. And I kept looking at that and just thinking, man, what a prime opportunity there for whatever. I thought at the time, like a concert venue or some kind of. So much potential. You know? But yeah, I was so happy when you moved in there. And I love how, uh, for those that have been or will go towards the bathrooms, you have all the pictures of what it used to look like of yeah. the fruit stand. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, everything is, we are who we are because of our history. It was like, it was cool to be in a place that, well, of course, the original site burned down, but to have it like kind of rebuilt and there's so much history in that building. It's, 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 it's amazing. You know, the, the site where peaches were packed out of in the early 20th century, the third rail line there exists because of packing beaches out of all of those warehouses that were there. Yeah. And then like, re and then taking, you know, something that had been vacant for a long time in many respects, although it was a distribution warehouse for Sarah Lee Bakery for a while and like converting it to something that the public use and embrace something that contributes to, to the towns was very important. Will we, I mean, we are, we have been trying to, find some land in Palisade to plant some grapes. I mean, there would have to be very different varieties than, than what Grand Cortez, just because of the lack of elevation. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to us about what you're doing now with this new project. I would imagine, I don't want to assume, but it's, it's probably different wines or different styles than you did at Infinite Monkey. Are you trying to move in a new direction personally? And, and what are we drinking here? I mean, this is amazing. Yeah, this is cool. This is, uh, our rose Pinot Noir that 
We don't have a label for yet. It's so good. Next week. It's coming out next week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we'll I'm happy to get a sneak peek. It's yeah, so yeah. good. It's, it's like it's so much acid. It's awesome. It's how I want to drink wines. Like really good acidity, bright, fresh, crisp, dry. Yeah, this is all fruit from a vineyard outside of Cortez that was actually planted by a grower called Guy Drew who used to have a winery in Cortez. Uh, it's called the Hawk's Nest. It's at 6,800 feet. That makes it the highest commercial vineyard in North America. Oh, no kidding. Which is cool. That is cool. Like higher than Hotchkiss and Bang. Like, and just, just like ripping acidity. We actually made a Mephish Champenois bottle fermented sparkling rose out of this as well. So this was essentially like the base wine for that product. And then I was like, it's so good on its own. Let's just bottle some of it. Rose a Pinot Noir from Colorado. And I mean, it's small, it's 150 cases. It's pretty, pretty yeah. damn good. It's going to go fast. Yeah, I can yeah. tell. Will this be in bottles or in a keg? That you're this will be in bottles. Bottles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Cortez like has the, I had, there was this opportunity in Cortez to take over a vineyard that had been in disrepair, basically. It was planted in 2006 and it just was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, and I better like do it right. I better have a vineyard. I better farm it. Like I better not just be like, oh, let's set up shop and then buy grapes from someone right. from the same person that every other Colorado winery buys grapes from. So okay, so it's you you get the the grapes from Cortez, but you're actually farming that land. You're not just buying it from. I know we're farming it. Okay. We do all of it ourselves. Um, you know, it's all like minimally farmed. There's no artificial sprays, fertilizers, it's all hand harvested. It's a pretty spot, man. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Cortez, but not too much, no. It's on the foothills of the, the Sleeping Utes. It stares at Mesa Verde. You can see the San Juans, the Replatas. You can see the Ship Rock, which is in the movies, New Mexico. And it sits on the uh, National Monument called the Yucca House, okay. which is an unexcavated ancestral Pueblo ruin. In between the 10th and 12th century, I believe 15,000 people lived on the site of the vineyard. And so, like, even in the vineyard, which is 13 acres, like Riesling, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, there's an unexcavated Kiva, an old sunken meeting place. And the rows run over the top of it, covers like the, the width, maybe six rows where they used to have meetings, you know, and everywhere you look at like pottery shards and it's got this crazy energy. It's cool. It's cool. It's a 5,800 feet massive, like, diode temperature shifts during the ripening period, which is important. Can people visit this? They, they can visit the Yucca House, for okay. sure. But, like, going up to the vineyard, you know, I would love to do something. I mean, I would love, I mean, Palisades is all about agritourism. I could, I could definitely do something down there in Cortez. It does get a lot of business, obviously, makes it Yeah. But, um, it would be, it would be really great to do something like that, you know, yurts or geodesic domes, something, you know. Yeah. Down there. yeah. So are you, are you trending towards a different style of winemaking than you did previously with this new project? Not really. Like, why didn't you just open Infinite Monkey Theorem uh, Palisade or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to can wine anymore, to be honest. Been there, done that. I want to make like the best wine I can from grapes that I've grown within the state of Colorado. And like my, my winemaking philosophy has always been fairly like non-interventionist. So 
you know, from from that standpoint, you know, there's not a lot of difference from from the wines I've made previously. But the, not the biggest thing that you can do is control the fruit, right? So if you're controlling it, that's that's going to stamp the signature. Right? That makes it your own. Yeah. To your point, if you're just buying the same grapes everyone else is buying. Yeah, there's 130 wineries buying grapes from the same person. Then the only difference they have to differentiate is oak treatment, yeast or not yeast. Yeah. That's, that's limited. Yeah, the fruit is what makes it special and distinct. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's, that's, that's where it's grown. And no one else in Palisade is getting their grapes from Cortez, I'm guessing. No, I mean, I, I sell some grapes to like Stephen Jamie up at, uh, you know, Storm Sour in, in Hodgkiss and like a few others. But, um, but, but the goal is to be self-sufficient. The goal is to use all the grapes I grow, right? That's, that's when it starts to make sense. You don't make money selling grapes unless you've got it down. No, I certainly don't make money selling grapes. So I want to turn it all into one. Okay. Um, and I'm going to plant some Chandon, Alvarino, Chablona, Susara. So how often do you drive back and forth to Cortez? Well, I have a, I have a cold crew down there now. So I have, admittedly, I haven't been down in a, in a couple of weeks, but back when I was doing it all myself. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember when you first got here, you said you were driving back was, all the time. Yeah. It was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a long way because there's three ways to go, but the quickest way is food buying, right? Like, so still three and a half hour drive. Yeah. Anyway, you slice and it. There's a little house down in the yard, uh, which, which is nice. I mean, very little house, like the size of your kitchen. It's, 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 it is what it is. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm down there pretty much once every other week right now. Right. It's really cool. Like my, um, vineyard manager was actually the guy that was the vineyard manager, Kenny Wind, when I moved there in 2001. Wow. Yeah. You so, kept in touch all these years. Yeah. Well, he went to Colteris, but just Kenny Wind, he went with them and, uh, he was ready to move on. And he, he started to do the farming down in Cortez me last year, which is great. Yeah. We worked with the whole kind of H2A visa program and brought people over and just trying to make that vineyard like top notch and grow some really good fruit, you know? Yeah. I didn't realize Colter had bought Canyon and. Yeah, Cortez purchased it maybe five or six years ago. From They've been buying up a lot of stuff. They bought Pluck Creek, right? They bought yeah. Prest, that yeah. old building, the train station depot yeah. building yeah. there. I think the train station is for sale, yeah. Oh, it is? It's not. I mean, it wasn't a train station. It was like the old offices for a rival packing company from the United Fruit Growers. Right, but it's a beautiful building. Oh, it'd be a great restaurant. I thought they were going to make it into a wine museum. That's what Plum Creek is now. Oh, Plum Creek. That's why they bought Plum Creek. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an opportunity for someone. Yeah, I mean, it would be maybe you awesome restaurant. Well, I've got so much space in the back there. I've got twelve thousand square feet. I do multiple restaurants, library. Yeah, what's your law? You know, for those that haven't been to the space, it's you have a big tasting room, and all your brewing equipment is there. Should I say fermenting equipment for wine? But in the back, you have the volleyball courts yeah, yeah, yeah. now, this other huge warehouse. So they've been your tenant for a while now. Sorry, I've been slacking on getting the community volleyball game <laughs> together. It's off my list. Would you ever consider making that more of a multi functional space? That was the goal. Okay. For sure. I'm not sure Palisade's ready for it right now. Almost like the source in Denver or something yeah, like that. I mean, like Kyle Zeppelin started the source, Infinite Monkey Fit was going to be in the source. 
you know, the, like oh, I was going to be in taxi free before, and he wasn't ready for two years. But, but yeah, I mean, we, me and him go way back. Okay. Like, Does he own Zeppelin, the food court too, right around yeah. the corner there? Oh, yeah. Okay. His dad was responsible for a lot of the building in Lodo and the Golden Triangle. Um, and, and like really, um, revolutionary his father in terms of, 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 you know, developing the city of Denver. And then he, of course, he, of course, has just picked up from where his father left off. But, um, yeah, that whole, that whole back space is big. It's 12,000 square feet. There's a lot of room to grow from a production standpoint, but also to make a real, make his mark like like in, in denver there's all these food halls but none of them are really they're not really making that much stuff you know? yeah like in certain people would disagree but that but it's like you know i could like, i could make sake in the back i could have a few different restaurant concepts like do a real bakery in the back like do a real coffee roaster in the back yeah somewhere where like tin city like where you could like hang out and just spend your day fleeting from one place to another. And I mean, if, if everything was successful, then, then that's what I would do. I mean, unfortunately, Palisade is dead for six months of the year. So that needs to change. Yeah. I mean, so is that, is what's stopping you from doing that vendor interest or people willing to, to do it? No, there's plenty of interest. Okay. You can't, you can't go to someone and be like, well, you're going to be really busy for six months, yeah. but then you're not going to have a soul walk by and half the palace is going to close down. Yeah. Well, you're a worldly guy. What do you think we should do? How do we fix this problem of being so dead? I mean, honestly, you have contributed a lot just with doing the post, the opera DJ parties in the winter. You guys have been at the forefront of trying to create a little something going on. Yeah. How can we as a town change this? Well, I mean, I think the town has to embrace it to start with, you know. They have to want, want it to be successful. Presumably, everyone benefits from that success, right? Doesn't, I mean, people just saying, Oh, we don't like change. Right. Just, you know, I've heard that, you know, from people in the city. Like, so it's like, that's, that's a challenge. But I feel like there's so many, so much new blood here, put it that way. People that really want things to do locally. And they want to be involved and go out. I mean, one of the things I always say all the time, so many wineries close at five. Yeah. Where on a summer day, I'm working on a Wednesday and it's like, okay, five o'clock, I got three hours of daylight. I'm going to go taste wine. Half of them are closed. Places have been doing better about that now. You're open late. But that's not enough people. I know, but it's just like, you have to, it's like, what? it's the chicken or the egg, right? It's like, you have to stay open to have some people come to build that following. But if you close all the time saying, oh, no one's going to come, then no one's going to come. But you also have to have to have a mechanism to get people, right? Like you live 12 miles from Grand Junction. Don't tell me no one in Grand Junction wants to drink wine. Like there, there, there are people in Grand Junction that would come out. Totally. But they don't want to drink and drive. I you see. know, why not set up the train like and, and have that going back, you know, five times a day. That'd be a amazing. train ride. And it stops in Schroeder as well. Through the junction, Palisade, back and forth all day long. Two carriages. You know, that's like, why, why is no one doing that? That's an amazing idea. Even if we could just take a local train to Fruta, I, I'd love going to Fruta, yeah. but half the time, to your point, I'm like, well, if I drive to Copper Club and have four beers, then do I really want to, you know, yeah. okay, I'll just walk to the brewery, which is great for Palisade because I stay here. 
But yeah, people from Fruta just wanting a change could take a train to Palisade or Junction. I mean, I think that would be awesome. I mean, it's like there's some, you know, there's all these, you know, supposed, you know, mechanisms for people to get from Junction to Palisade, but I don't see anyone like embracing it. What are they? I mean, I've I've heard recently there's lots of shuttle services between Grand Junction and Palisade. There are. Well, maybe it's just people that. Junction don't want to come visit Palisade. Wait, they think it's too far. I don't know. It's like it's it's annoying to me because I hear constantly, "Oh, it's so far." I'm like, it's twelve miles. Yeah, it's you not know? far. It's like, come on. Yeah, I've never heard of any shuttle service. To be honest, I really, I really, not really that I can think of. Honestly, well, that, that I, I took the bus once exist. to the Grand Junction Rockies game. Tim and I took it. It took over an hour to get from Palisade just to the. I like the regular. Yeah, to get to like uh, yeah, just the regular city bus, just yeah. to get to downtown Grand Junction, it took like over an hour. It's like, all right, well, I'm in for a special occasion for that, but I'm not going to do that all the time. Yeah, I think I think someone needs to start something where it's like there's a schedule and they're picking people up from hotels and downtown. They they bring people, they just drop them off downtown Palisade, and then the local shuttles can like pick people up and then distribute them amongst the wineries and everything else. So it needs to be people need to get from Junction to Palisade. To start, so the train would make sense, or someone that, that that wants to actually start something that's more on a schedule, at least at the weekend, you know. Yeah. No, because everyone doesn't want to just drink wine during the week necessarily, but you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Having the train, what, what would be stopping us from doing that? Uh, that would be a big investment, think, obviously. But is that legally okay to do a local train like that? So why not? I don't know. I mean, it's like they get in the way of other trains. We just had a train derail here in Palisade right. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so yeah. We saw that. Yeah, that was. Crazy. I mean, there's there's room to pull a train over. I mean, of course, like Amtrak and the other trains have to have priority. But if it was small enough, right, you've got the third rail, you could stop. You know, I, I mean, I don't. Know. I'm sure it's more technical than what I'm saying. But you know, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Totally. I mean, I, if, I'm living in Junction. I would go downtown, park, take the train. Pop, I mean, how long does it take to get from Junction to Palace at the train? 20 minutes? 25 minutes? Yeah. Like, get Max. off, get picked up by day, someone, you know, yeah. like just cruise around the wineries and then get back on. And, uh, and like, people keep telling me there's Ubers in Palace. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I take an Uber to the airport, it's always a gamble. Yeah. Will they be here in 20 minutes? Will they be here in yeah. 30 minutes? Yeah. Not the most reliable. How is the coordinate? I mean, we have Pally Tours, obviously. You got Mark with Palisade Pedicap. But is there any kind of collaboration between the wineries to work on this to say, hey, what if we did actually have uh, a shuttle that just went on the Fruit and Wine Byway and stopped in downtown, et cetera? I mean, I think there could be more collaboration, honestly, between the wineries you know, and I, I think there is to some extent, but they could they could definitely get together and be like, let's let's form let's form a shovel service or let's engage an existing shovel service that is underutilized and let's let's try and work together. I mean, right now you have like red trolley that seems to stop at like predetermined places. Yeah, how's that working? I've got no idea. Okay. Don't stop They're not stopping for you. <laughs> Yeah, I see you can buy a pass, but I think I asked them one time on their social media and they sent, they already have a pre route. It's not just, oh, we'll drop you anywhere. I think they, 
have deals with certain wineries. Yeah, they, they approached us. They were like, well, you could give our customers like a discount. And I, they were like, well, why bridge it up? You don't want to do that? I mean, I don't need someone going to eight wineries and then showing up in my winery hammered. And then give over. them discounted alcohol. You know, alcohol doesn't really make sense. That's fair enough. But if the town of Palisade ran a shuttle that they charged yeah. five bucks for whatever that wasn't involved in a discount, they just funded it via the, or even via the, uh, you know, they raised the room tax and things like that with the tourism board now, funding it that way just to get people pay, not behind the wheel. And yeah. get them exposed to more things. They may go to a place they never heard of. Well, we also need more beds here. We do. 300 beds, it's, it's not enough, you know. Yeah. But there's a lot of places that, like a boutique hotel, could be, could be built. Um, you know, certainly behind, you know, the, the, the peach shack up there, there could be something. And, and even like downtown, they, they could be more. And then there would be more food, more restaurants. You know, I, I would like to think that, that it could, it could grow into more of a, a destination that was kind of self-sufficient in terms of accommodating people, feeding people, you know. Yeah. But right now, most people stay in Junction, so like the, the food revenue and the accommodation revenue just goes to Junction. Totally. When most people who come to the Valley probably aren't even interested in going to Grand Junction, they're staying there because the lodging's there, and then they probably come to Palisade or Brudeau or yeah, Ventura. Yeah, Junction still has a lot to offer. I mean, the monument and stuff's cool, you know. I mean, and then now downtown, there's some there's good breweries, and, and it's like it's a growing community. You know, I don't think you should discount Junction. Uh, you know, like it's certainly a lot better than it was in 2001. Well, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying, like, some people, to your point, may say, "Oh, I want to go to Palisade, and but there's no rooms available, so I'm going to stay in Junction." You know, right. they're they're forced to stay over there. Yeah, they have to. I mean, it's like it's. And then it's a challenge because it's like, well, I, I want to have, I want to go taste some wine, but now I have to have a designated driver. It's not much fun. Totally. Yeah. I'm guessing most people don't think like that. They no, just, I'm, I'm sure they just drive. Give me an which is not good either. No. Yeah. Right. But you believe in this place. You chose this. You know, you said right here, I'm able to travel anywhere in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to admit uh, on 227 West 4th over, over downtown Palace. I loved it. Love to live in here. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and I've said it many times. Like in a, in the right year, Colorado could make wines that are as good as any wines anywhere in the world. Like, and I genuinely believe that. It, but you need it needs its champions. It, it needs that sommelier to like get behind it. It needs that restaurant owner to get behind it. It needs. You know, the wine writers to not consider it a joke and stop writing about Colorado wine. It's, it's sure it's small and it will always be small, but it's also like something that's uniquely Colorado. Like where, where could you like go? I mean, probably if you guess, where could you go skiing in the morning and then wine tasting in the afternoon? You know? Yeah. That 25 minute drive. But aren't you that guy for us? You're probably the most famous winemaker in Palisade. Aren't you the guy to? Help convince wine spectator and all these restaurants and I've been trying. <laughs> yeah, there was a cool article on the ES- on the ESPN today about ordinary fellow. On ESPN, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, ESPN Florida. Yeah. Oh, you have to send it to me. I'll yeah, share it with the like, audience when we air the episode. Yeah, and what did tom- say? Tomorrow we get uh, some scores from Robert Parker from Wine Advocate. You know, like which is legit. 
you know, like it's it's one thing sending wines to competitions where everyone gets a rosette, just like when your child went to horse riding, they didn't want anyone to miss out, so they gave them the bronze medal, you know. Yeah. But like it's another thing getting a significant review from a from a wine writer that is storied and people care about it. Tomorrow it comes out? Yeah. Do you know what it is? No idea. Are you nervous? <laughs> Are you nervous? No, I think it'll be fine. You think know? it'll be fine? Yeah. I mean, it's, but yeah, it's like, yeah, I think there's a story to be told. And I think I have unfinished business in the Colorado wine industry. I want to make great wine. I think I can do it here. I think that this, the whole Western Slope, it's like, is, is like a great place to live, like proximity to outdoors. I mean, some of my best friends are from here, you know, and they're all so outdoorsy and they, you know, they, they grew up and they made, you know, they do great things, you know. But then Hoffman, best, one of my best friends, a pro- professional triathlete from Junction, finished second at Kona. Really? Yeah. Like, and he's junk, he's from Junction. Oh, that's amazing. Like, I didn't realize that. There's just, I've, I've always felt like people that are born here, like who really embrace the outdoors are like very good at what they do. Yeah. Whether like, it's rock climbing, running, or skiing, or it's just like this outdoorsman that, Really, yeah. I'll have to have Ben on the pod sometimes. I dabbled in the triathlon at one oh, point. Oh, you should. And, yeah, he's, uh, uh, it's a story for him. Definitely day, come but. on. Like his his family still lives here. He's got two kids that's in uh, uh, Tucson right now. But um, I'm sure he would come on. Like, well, know. I just want to talk to him about his uh, addiction to exercise because <laughs> that's what I found in the triathlete community. I, yeah. I like to call them psycho athletes. They uh, all they do is work out and then. To the point where they even, I'm guaranteeing his wife is also some kind of triathlete or whatever. She was a swimmer. Of course. Yeah. He, uh, but he even has like an Instagram page for his calf muscles. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely coming up. <laughs> well, so it, it intrigues me. And I know you got to go soon. So we'll, we'll start to wrap it up here. But it's, uh, it intrigues me that you're not worried about your review that's coming out tomorrow. And that kind of triggered in my mind. We had a conversation when I first started my kombucha company. And I was trying to sell it around to different places. And I confess to you that I was nervous about doing these sales calls, about just going into breweries, having them taste it, because what if they hate it? What if they say it sucks? And I kind of looked to you and I'm like, what do you do when you take your wine around? And you were just kind of shrugged. You're like, nah, I don't really care. I let them try it. If they don't like it, whatever, I just leave. Something of that sort. And it just, your nonchalance really helped me. It was kind of a gift in a way of uh, just remembering to have that thick skin and to be proud of what you produce. But is that kind of the same feel like for you with trying to impress some famous wine reviewer? Yeah. I mean, um, it would be great if it got a great review, right? Cause you could use it, but if it gets a bad one, it's fine. You just like, you just be like, well, what did they know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You just write them off. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Every client that turns me down for the kombucha, I'm just like, well, that place sucks anyway. You know, no, I mean, you said you got to take uh, criticism. It's good. It's it's good to have criticism. I mean, it's plenty of wine stores that you know. I went around with my first wines, and they were like, "Yeah, don't re- from ordinary fellow, don't really, not really into it." And then I went back last week, and I mean, we got into some great restaurants, you know, on the front ledge, um, and like that will that will do us like a lot of good. Is it that your wine's better now, or is it that your branding? Because I feel it's so many things in life. It's 
It could be they try it, they just don't know it, so they don't have the connection with it, but then they hear yeah. their buddy talking about it, they try it again, all of a sudden they love it or something like that, or they see this perception of the brand, which adds to what they're tasting. It's that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's the like, sales. That's so important. When it's something that's new, it's harder to get behind. When other people have already got behind it, right. it becomes easy. What's the ESPN article about? That seems just rather about the like, Why ESPN? Like the sports? Yeah, I mean, I guess they have like uh, some, some like you know, local Florida. I'll call it up here. Let's see. It was cool. It was just about, it was just about the winery in general. You know? Like, uh, I didn't know ESPN covered wine or any destinations that weren't. I thought you were going to say they were writing about like the volleyball team that plays uh, in the yeah, water or something. Yeah. No, it's really just about the, the winery and the wines. I mean, I, I guess they have, they do more than just sports, you know? I'll show, I'll show it to you when I find it. Yeah, share it with me later and I'll, uh, I'll share it. Yeah. Well, what can we expect from you in the coming couple of months this summer? Anything new planned? Well, we got just a lot of new wines coming out, like this, uh, 2022 Rosé Pinot Noir. We have our 2022 Pinot Noir coming out as well. We have our 2020. Method Champenois, Bottle Fermented Sparkling Rosé coming out. It's made in Washington State. We have our 2022 Chardonnay coming out. We've got all these really, like, well-curated cocktail, wine cocktails that we've made. What's uh, in a wine cocktail? You know, wine is the base alcohol, basically. Right, and what are you mixing it with? Like, we're doing just, we're just cool stuff. We've always done the mojito, which is just, like, fresh mint with our Riesling and you know, simple syrup and it's actually delicious. Well, you wouldn't know it wasn't the room heater. And then, um, you know, we're doing, uh, like a Coca Vino, which is our Malo with Coca Cola. It's like delicious. <laughs> I've heard about this. I think they drink it in South America yeah, or something like that. Like, yeah. It's, it's just soda and wine mixed, yeah, right? We have this strawberry puree, which is strawberries from our garden with our rose and some mint, which is divine. That sounds really good. Um, yeah, and of course we have food too, right? Like the snack, it's arguably the best food in Palisade, I would say. And are they permanent at your winery now? Yeah, I mean, they're there four days a week, okay. uh, Megan and Mike. And um, I mean, I don't think their food is as good as anywhere in the valley, to be honest. And it's, and it's, it's fun to have them, you know, at the winery. I think it means we get customers a little bit later because everyone's like, well, let's go cruise the vineyards and then let's go to the one fill up later and hang out and yeah. last get some meat, something to eat which makes sense yeah you're one of the only wineries that's kind of a nighttime hangout yeah we're open later you're almost like a bar yeah without selling beer or right yeah but i'm just saying like the atmosphere right like like i say a lot of the wineries close five six o'clock you go there it's People go and sit separately you you actually have a bar people just kind of belly up hang out that's where I've met friends there. You know, right. it seems more of a communal kind of atmosphere you've created. That's yeah, I, I think that's deliberate. I mean, it's, um, we have that really nice patio too that's like faces east, kind of stairs at the ground mesa. Right, it's amazing. Which is nice. Um, yeah, I say your, your, uh, wine tenders have the best office in town because they have the garage door window right there. Yeah. They look right out. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for a lot of the wines. I'm excited to, to plant some different varietals down in Cortez, but, but, um, that haven't necessarily been grown in Palisade and, 
and just, you know, we're talking about getting an AVA designated down there, the four corners, because like the Grand Valley is American viticultural area, West Alps is one, and four corners or monsoon should be one. So we're working on that, which maybe will encourage more people to plant grapes down there. There's a lot of acreage you could plant down there. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the future is, is bright for the Colorado wine industry. I mean, I, I, I and, and for Palisade, I just, I just think that we could all be doing more to promote Palisade. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it someday. We can all help a little bit, I think. And, uh, yeah. we all believe in this town. We're all here. We all see it. I think we're yeah. all here for a reason. So we'll see what happens. I love what you're doing with your events. Uh, just one quick last plug, especially your history nights. I think they're awesome. Kind of putting your money where your mouth is with the, you know, your love of history. You have the, I guess, monthly Palisade Historical Society talks. Yeah. They're uh, great. I mean, which is amazing. Uh, yeah. We get a good turnout for that. And, and, and the, the most successful one was, was talking about the, um, all of the, uh, shapes and imagery, imagery on the, uh, side of the mesa, you know, the Thunderbird and the, the mammoth and the serpents. Oh, I missed that one. I've heard about the swan and that if once the neck is melted or broken, it's like, then it's like safe to plant down here in the valley. Yeah, I've yeah. heard some wisdom from the Ute Indians on that. It's all Ute mythology, like, um, the, uh, apparently the Thunderbird, uh, came down. The serpent had stolen the Thunderbird's eggs. The Thunderbird came down, enraged, picked up the serpent, flew up onto the Grand Mesa and tore it to pieces. And that's why all the lakes are on top of the Grand Mesa. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And there's a, actually, uh, uh, it's, you can YouTube it. There's a video, YouTube video, the guy that was used to be over here, legends of the Grand Mesa. It's like 20 minutes long. It's, it's awesome. The it's Legends great. of the Grand Mesa YouTube. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll check it out. about all those shapes up there and that history about, you know, how the lakes were formed in the Grand Mesa. Love it, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time and stopping by for a little bit. I know you're a busy guy. I look forward to seeing you around the summer and hanging at the Ordinary Fellow. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for coming by, mate. Enjoyed it. Catch you around town. Cheers. Kingdom overseas with the wisdom guaranteed that my rhythm hit the